With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. free speech to free minds you're listening to the david knight show as the clock strikes 13 it's thursday the 21st of april Year of our Lord, 2022, day 769 of the continuing emergency. And now new emergency powers have been taken by the governor of Georgia. Uh, He claims that he has to do something to fix the supply chain. But didn't that happen because of the other emergencies? Well, it is a perpetual motion machine, this tyranny that is rolling out. And as we look at this move by the Biden administration, uh, you've got to struggle for who's going to be our dictator. Will it be the judiciary or will it be the bureaucracy? Which one will be your master? Will you be a slave to their dictates as now they have switched on the mask? We'll start with that today. Stay with us. As I've said many times, the uh, government will never give you back what it has stolen, especially when we're talking about power. Freedom is always taken. And if you want it, you're going to have to take it back. They're not going to give it to you. The thing that surprises me is that I thought that they were going to at least wait until election season was over. But it appears that these people become so enamored of their power that they can't let that slide. Not even to save themselves. And that's really where they are. It is a kind of mental illness, this, this greed for power, that consumes them and ultimately betrays them. Because if you look at the reactions, I talked about this yesterday, I mean, there's many, many videos on social media of how in mid-flight the announcement was made and how people reacted, flight attendants, 
passengers, people who worked at the airports. Here's just one of them. April 18th, the Biden administration announced that the Transportation Security Administration will no longer enforce the federal mandate requiring masks in all U.S. airports and onboard aircraft. Yay, and they rip them off and cheer. <laughs> Finally! Uh, effective immediately, immediately, masks are optional for all airport employees, crew members, and customers inside U.S. airports and onboard aircraft. Okay, so, you know, as we uh, say, yesterday I, I said, well, I think they're going to um, they're gonna bring this thing back. They're not giving this up. I talked about how Leanna Wynn uh, said, well, the important thing is that you save this, this power and so forth. And yet you had Biden saying uh, this the first part of the day and then followed it up with uh, some ambiguity later in the day. People continue to wear masks on planes. That's up to them. Is your administration going to appeal the gas mandate? Yeah, who's in charge here? <laughs> First he says, well, it's up to them. You know, we're going to let you have some control over your life an hour and a half later. Well, um, I'm waiting to hear from the CDC now because you'd already heard from the Department of Justice. And uh, they basically kicked the ball to the CDC, essentially kicked the CDC under the bus is what they did. Uh, because now it's incumbent upon them to come up with some pseudoscience to continue this charade, this masquerade. Uh, Bloomberg said the Justice Department said Tuesday that it stood ready to appeal the ruling. And I said, of course, they're never going to let this stand. They're never going to let this be taken away from them, this power that they stole. Uh, but I really did think that they were going to wait until after the election. Maybe they've just written it off. <laughs> and maybe they're just going to enjoy the power until the Titanic goes under the water. <laughs> I don't know what their motivation is. <clears throat> I mean, you look at smart politicians, and I'd put Newt Gingrich in the category of smart politicians. Uh, not that I agree with him. <laughs> He's a warmonger, typical establishment Republican, but he does know that you want to be on the side where 80% of the people are. He said, yeah, you figure out what 80% of the people are. I, I want to be with that rather than with the 20%. But not these guys. I guess they figure they can rig any election, don't you think? Uh, so that was met with surprise at the CDC. I said, well, wait a minute. Um, you're going to appeal the ruling? Which an hour later issued its own statement that it did not clearly say whether the health agency wanted the Justice Department to pursue the appeal. The CDC had been reviewing whether to lift the mask order before the court killed it. As I pointed out, you immediately had, <clears throat> you know, Biden says, well, that's it, it's done. And I says, isn't that interesting that they're not going to appeal this, the games that they played with the uh, mask mandates with OSHA, and of course, keeping it on for another three weeks was just to muddy the water and to confuse people, even in the transportation industry, after they put on the mask mandate for going, uh, sorry, not the mask mandate, the vaccine mandate uh, for going across uh, the Canadian and Mexican borders on Saturday, they come back and say, well, we're not going to uh, continue to try to fight against the Supreme Court on this OSHA mandate. And everybody said, oh, well, they reversed it. Just two days, they reversed it. No, they didn't. That was put on by Department of Homeland Security. It was just a head fake to to deceive people. And it worked. It really did. And, and so immediately when this court decision comes out from the federal judge in Florida, you have the CDC say, yeah, okay. You know, we're thinking about, you know, we 
first we extended it for months and months at a time, you know, and then we just extended it another 30 days. And then when that 30 days ended, we said, all right, just give us two more weeks. Well, the judge didn't give them two more weeks. And so and they said, all right, we give up. The TSA said, we give up. Biden said, we give up. And then the Justice Department and uh, the lawyer really at HHS, Javier Becerra, remember HHS is over CDC uh, in terms of their, you know, CDC is kind of a quasi-private organization. It's, a, it's got 501c3 status and so forth. Uh, so it's, it's not, in terms of it's supposed to be taking orders from HHS, uh, you can guess who they're taking orders from. But anyway, the, um, uh, the fact that uh, the lawyer that uh, Biden put over the HHS uh, instead of a big pharmaceutical executive like Trump did said, I uh, know we're going to fight that. Then the Department of Justice says, well, it's up to the CDC if they want us to fight this. And so by the end of the day, that's what they were doing. And they said, we're going to do it now. That was the thing that surprised me. Uh, so... As Zero Hedge points out, having exhausted our incredulity glands and our satire organs yesterday, <laughs> we're not just going to tell you the news. The CDC has asked the Justice Department to appeal a judge's ruling that threw out a mask requirement for plane and air travel, setting up a court battle over the decision. The Department of Justice had said on Tuesday that it said ready to appeal the decision issued Monday by a Trump-appointed federal judge in Florida, but that it would do so only subject to the CDC's conclusion that the order remains necessary for public health. Uh, yeah, they are dumber and dumber. <laughs> Dumb and dumber. Tweedledee and Tweedledumber. Uh, they are dumber than even I imagined. I mean, they, <laughs> they surpassed my expectations of stupidity uh, in terms of doing this because they want total arbitrary power and they want it now and they don't want to even have to wait until after the election when they could come up with the fiction of well we got a new variant we got a variant here and it's gonna surge so put your mask on buckle your seat belts we ain't going nowhere you know, that type of thing we knew that was going to happen eventually but it happened immediately that's the surprising thing and, and so what this is i think is uh, this is a pushback. Every time they talk about this, you notice they don't mention the judge's name. They just say Trump appointed judge, Trump appointed judge, Trump appointed judge. Well, you know, Trump is not interested in this. He doesn't have a dog in this fight. He hasn't said anything about this. He's still having spats with Piers Morgan over whether he won the election or not in 2020. He doesn't care about anything other than his sorry behind. His ego, his money, his power trip. He doesn't care about the mask mandates. He never said anything about it. Never had a problem with it. And he doesn't care about this, even to come out and for him to take credit. See, I, I did that. I pointed that judge. No, the conservative media is giving him all the credit, but he's not crowing about that. Isn't that interesting? You know, the dog that didn't bark. So anyway, the CDC is continuing its assessment that at this time, an order requiring masking of the indoor transportation corridor remains necessary for public health. CDC believes this is a lawful order. Uh, no, <clears throat> no, there isn't. There's no law. There's no law about this. There's no science about this. It's just an order. This color of law is what it is. 
They be, I believe that this is a color of law order. They say, we think this is a lawful order well within the CDC's legal authority to protect public health <clears throat> before there's anything threatening it, which is the basis of this extension of the emergency by Governor Greg Abbott here in Texas. He said, well, the possible threat of some virus coming back, <clears throat> that justifies extending this for a long time. We could possibly, in the future, have a threat. So I'm going to keep us under state of emergency as if something unexpected had happened. Now, what this truly is, is I think uh, we have crossed the Rubicon into a dictatorship of the administrative state, of the bureaucracy. We've been trending this way for a long time. And now, uh, you know, with this pandemic thing, they move the entire army across the Rub Rubicon. And the, um, the fact is, for the longest time, and it used to be that Rand Paul would talk about this, he's been suspiciously silent for the last two years, last 769 days. He used to have what he called the Reigns Act to rein in the power that had been abdicated by Congress to the bureaucracy, the three-letter agencies that are unaccountable to you. And that's why Nancy Pelosi said, well, we got to pass Obamacare to find out what's in it because it's going to be the bureaucracy that decides what's in it. They're going to put the details really in it. We'll create legislation or we'll create uh, a, a general mission statement. We might even create a new bureaucracy like they did with the Consumer Financial Protection Agency. But then we'll let these people decide what they want to do. They'll write the rules. They're not laws, they're rules, so they call it civil, not criminal. Then they will accuse you of violating that. They will be the ones who ferret you out, and then they will be the ones who will decide whether or not you violated their rules. You will have no presumption of innocence, you'll have no due process, you'll have no trial by jury, and you'll have no protection against excessive fines and punishments. And that's the way this has been trending. And so when you look at this, this is just a continuation of that trend, because now we have bureaucracies at every level. You can be at the federal level, the state level, or the local level. You have these public health dictatorships, and they will dictate at any given time what you may or may not do. And so that power must be preserved, even to the extent that as we got a hint of this with the Supreme Court ruling on OSHA, they said, uh, well, we're not going to pay attention to what the Supreme Court said. It's like, well, wait a minute. We've always, you know, for the last several decades, really, uh, my entire life, we've operated under the principle that uh, the Supreme Court gets the final say over everything. And they can veto any law that they wish, and they can create law out of thin air. Things like uh, Roe v. Wade, where they define when life begins, or marriage, where they define what marriage is. And so we have operated under judicial supremacy, especially, you know, the Supreme Court is the pinnacle of judicial supremacy, yet the Biden administration said, well, we'll pay attention to it, or maybe not. And um, I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And now when you see this, I think this is the next step in us being ruled by unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats in the administrative state. So the Biden administration is set to appeal the ruling that lifted the mask mandate for travel. They're going to fight the court system over it. Of course, they won't have to fight too hard because these judges that Trump appointed 
uh, have become rubber stamps for any COVID removal of your constitutional rights. Uh, so in a very short period of time, uh, the Biden administration went from uh, okay at 2 o'clock. Okay, we'll go with whatever the judge said. You get to decide. An hour and a half later, well, uh, we're going to see about this. I don't know. Or starts waffling. And then by the end of the day, it's like, uh, definitely, we're going to appeal this. And we're going to fight this. Again, I'll remind you what Jonathan Turley said yesterday. This administration is going to have a hard time walking this cat backwards. When you look at all these videos of the cheering passengers and pilots, the airport workers who are sick and tired of this masquerade, he says, uh, those cheering videos could have a greater impact on the White House than any CDC or DOJ recommendation, except that they didn't. They don't care about the election. I mean, you know, Biden is still barely pulling 50 people when he has uh, a meeting, uh, just like we saw back in 2020. But somehow he managed to win the election. And I imagine the Democrats think they've got a lot of tricks up their sleeve this time. They don't have to care about whether or not they're authentically elected or whether or not you like them. You just do what they say, and they will count the votes. That's what this is really about. Uh, the CDC now has to come up with some science in order to remandate the masks, which we know they can't, but you know, they'll just whatever they say. It doesn't have to be. Uh, it does, they don't have to support it. I mean, you know, this, their science means I'm an authority, and I tell you what this means. So it's not science. It's dictates. Everything about this is dictates. Uh, what they tell you to do is a dictate. The reason that they tell you to do that is also dictated to you. And you must not, you dare not question that or you get, you know, purged. Whether you're a reporter or whether you're an individual on social media, or certainly if you're a medical professional or a scientist working academia, you're purged. End of your career if you question this. So in, in essence, uh, one of the ways I see this is uh, – kind of office politics, a competition between uh, the bureaucracy, the administrative dictatorial state, and the judiciary, who is going to be supreme. And then the question is, for us, are we going to take orders from either of these, <laughs> either of these uh, clowns? I to say branches of government. The, the bureaucracy is not a branch of government, except that it is. <laughs> It's not a constitutional branch of government, but it is out of control. And it's unfortunate that Rand Paul no longer cares about that. The mask mandate is illegal. Uh, and these are some of the quotes from this district judge who uh, ruled on this, Judge Catherine Kimball Mazell. Uh, and uh, we will identify her by that rather than just the moniker the Trump judge. The Trump judge did it. The Trump judge. No, she's got a name. <laughs> and she's got a mind, and she opposed something that President Trump never opposed and still hasn't opposed. He's been silent about all this, not even taking credit for her appointment. So the case was Health Freedom Defense Fund versus Joseph R. Biden. Uh, and so <clears throat> what this means is that for all time, passengers and transportation employees have been forced to follow a mandate that was enforced with criminal penalties. This is brownstone.org. I would disagree with them. Uh, they're not criminal penalties. They're civil penalties, you see. There's a difference there. This is this uh, prevarication that they use, the semantics. 
you know, we have civil asset forfeiture. It's not a crime. I'm not accusing you of committing a crime, and I don't have a law on the books. This is something that the bureaucracies came up with. Actually, it was, you know, civil asset forfeiture was uh, proposed by Joe Biden, but it's really the agencies that are doing it, and that's why they call it civil. Now, you may feel like you're getting punished for a crime, but you're not. They're charging your property, your inanimate uh, property, inanimate objects. They're charging a stack of money, or they're charging a car with a crime, or they're charging an airplane with a crime, or a house with a crime. And since a house can't defend itself, they just take everything from it. There's no due process. They don't ever even charge you with a crime, let alone find you guilty before they take uh, something that is very expensive, which would be excessive punishment. And so, you know, you have mandates enforced with civil penalties by these bureaucrats. Um, <clears throat> countless millions have been threatened, victimized, hectored, barked at, thrown off of buses, trains, and planes, and even young children forcibly muzzled as their parents are denounced, when in fact it has been the federal government itself that has been violating the law. And so immediately after this, it wasn't just the passengers and the flight attendants cheering, it was also the airlines themselves that were cheering. Uh, the only people who uh, were upset about this were these authoritarian dictates dictators that were uh, running the flight attendant union, but a lot of the flight attendants and the flight attendants themselves, most of them didn't like it either, as we saw. Uh, so anyway, 16 months of brutal enforcement of edicts has now been declared to be illegal. And here are some of the things that she had to say. I'm not going to read you the entire thing, but she does have some good quotes in here. And it's very well reasoned out. This is Judge Mazel, federal judge. Within the past two years, she said, the CDC has found within this section that they refer to for their power, uh, the, the power to shut down the cruise ship industry and to stop landlords from evicting tenants who have not paid their rent. Again, lest we forget, right? The CDC under Trump, and they extended it under Trump a, a first time. They continued to extend it under Biden as well. But the CDC under Trump, said, well, now we're going to talk about whether or not people can be evicted or foreclosed upon, and we're going to stop all of that. Like, what? How does anybody in government have the power to do that, let alone the CDC, a quasi-private organization? That was astounding, made even more astounding by the fact that nobody in government stopped it. Uh, it was it lost in court multiple, multiple times. And then finally, they found one court that agreed with him. And because of that, the Biden administration started siding with him. But it happened under Trump, and it was extended once under Trump, even. So for the past two years, they have declared they have the power to shut down the cruise ship industry, to stop landlords from evicting tenants, the CDC has, um, and uh, to require that persons using public conveyances wear masks. Courts have concluded that the first two of these measures exceed the CDC's statutory authority. In other words, they've completely lost in court over trying to shut down the cruise ship industry and uh, trying to um, uh, bankrupt anybody who owns property. That's what that really was about. They weren't trying to save uh, tenants. They were just trying to bankrupt anybody who owns property because the plan is for you to own nothing. And 45% of the quote-unquote landlords 
were uh, individuals who were renting out a house that they used to own or, you know, they had, uh, you know, a couple of houses that they rented or something like that. They were not like BlackRock. BlackRock was not really worried about this at all. No court, she said, has yet ruled on the legality of this third thing. So they shut them down the cruise ship. They shut them down on the eviction. But nobody has ruled, she said, on the third thing, which is requiring masks on any public transportation. The court concludes that this referenced authority uh, does not authorize the CDC to issue the mask mandate. As the list of actions suggests, the federal government's use of quarantine power has been traditionally limited to localized disease elimination measures applied to individuals and objects suspected of carrying disease. It now finds, however, that power extends far beyond it to population-wide preventative measures like near-universal mask requirements that apply even in settings with little nexus to interstate disease spread. So that's key. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The idea that the federal government should interject itself into something that does not cross the state borders. They don't have authority to do that. So she says, for example, City buses and Ubers. Where's the federal government's authority to tell you that you've got to wear a mask on a city bus? Such definition, she said, reverses the import of history as well as reversing the roles of the states and the federal government. Anyone who refuses to comply with the conditions of mask wearing is, in a sense, detained or partially quarantined by exclusion from transportation under authority of the mask mandate. They're forcibly removed from airplane seats, denied boarding at the bus steps, turned away at the train station doors, all on suspicion, suspicion that they will spread a disease. They don't even, you know, you don't wear the mask, well, you're gone. You don't even get one of these phony PCR tests. Uh, no, if you don't have a mask on, you're going to spread the disease. Well, I'm not sick. And you haven't even produced any flimsy evidence to try to pretend that I'm sick or infected, of course, you know, because they flag people who are asymptomatic, uh, which, by the way, means that they're also not transmitting this. Indeed, she said the mask mandate enlists local governments, airport employees, flight attendants, and even ride-sharing drivers to enforce these removal measures. See, that is uh, where we failed because long, long, long ago, we should have said uh, there is the uh, non-common anti-commandeering act. Yeah, you cannot commandeer us, federal government, and you have no jurisdiction here 
on these intrastate, things within a state, these intrastate uh, actions. She said Black's Law Dictionary defines uh, detention. She talks about how this is detention and quarantine. So Black's Law uh, Dictionary defines detention as confinement or compulsory delay and quarantine as the isolation of a person with communicable disease or the prevention of such a person. By the way, let me just say this, compulsory delay. How many times have we seen people who are arrested and we say, am I under arrest? No. All right, well, I'm going to go. No, you can't go. You're being detained. Well, see, under Black's Law, and all of you need to remember this, this has happened to me. Uh, happened to me when I was investigating the Asymmetric Warfare Center. Uh, we were not under arrest, but we were not free to go either. Oh, well, what is this? Uh, this is a lie. You're either free to go or you're under arrest. Detention and compulsory delay uh, is arrest. Right? It really is. Um, anyway, isolation of a person with a communicable disease or the prevention of such a person from coming into a particular area, uh, that is quarantine, the purpose being to prevent the spread of disease, except you have just assumed that somebody is diseased. You haven't even bothered to test them with your phony tests. As a result, she said, the mask mandate is best understood not as sanitation, but as an exercise of the CDC's power to conditionally release individuals to travel despite concerns that they may spread a communicable disease. But the power to conditionally release and detain is ordinarily limited to individuals entering the United States from a foreign country. Oh, no, if you did that, you'd be called racist. The CDC issued the mandate. Now, here's another thing. Look at the timing of this. This is key. This is very key. When did the CDC issue the mandate? February 2021. And she points out that's two weeks after Biden called for the mandate. Oh, so it wasn't based on science or medicine or disease or pandemics or any of that kind of stuff. It was based on the fact that Biden wanted it. So they were his handmaids. And she said that was 11 months after the president had uh, declared COVID-19 a national emergency. President Trump had done that. So 11 months after. Trump had declared the emergency. Biden says, yeah, we should have a mass mandate. And then two weeks later, the CDC conveniently issues one. And uh, she also points out that was 13 months after the secretary of HHS had declared a public health emergency. Remember, in January, HHS, uh, January of 2020, Trump's HHS director, Alex Azar, former CEO of Eli Lilly, Uh, issued an emergency order. Then two months later, Trump issued it. Uh, 11 months later, you have Biden say, I'd like to have a mask mandate. And two weeks after that, the CDC does it. Now, she says, this history suggests that the CDC itself did not find the passage of time particularly serious. Where is the emergency, right? Where is the emergency? The mandate does not address alternative or supplementary requirements to masking, such as testing, temporary checks, or occupancy limits in transit hubs or conveyances. It also does not explain why all masks are sufficient, whether they're homemade or medical grade, right? Why? You know, this is simply a sign of obedience. 
If it weren't a sign of obedience, they would have a standard for the masks that they believe would work. Uh, but they don't. This has been a part of the fiction all along. And oh, by the way, it's not just a fiction of the CDC. It was a fiction of Fauci. Uh, yeah, we told you not to wear the mask because, uh, you know, it ain't going to work. Uh, but I was just lying to you because we didn't have enough of these N95 masks. And we're trying to save it for our first responders. And then he says, uh, but meanwhile, now you get a, now you get a cloth mask and put it on your face because I said so. And then you have people like Mike Adams who pushed it even before Fauci reversed on the line, uh, selling cloth masks as well. Oh, and InfoWars as well. You get a big InfoWars thing. On there. <laughs> uh, yeah, that tells you where they are. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, people are able to sell any kind of mask they want. That's why you had a lot of people walking around with these open mesh masks that they were using for paintball. I mean, they had, you could put a, put a penny through the uh, various holes and it's like, that's a mask. There's no definition of what, a, I mean, this is a mask. You can see through it. I can breathe through it. There's no definition that says how close the fibers have to be. Uh, you know, they're far enough apart that I can fit coins through it. That's not a problem, is it? You didn't say that I couldn't wear that kind of mask. Any kind of mask goes. And so that's what she calls them out on, that BS. She goes on to say, this is, again, the federal judge's decision. These are some quotes from her decision. She said, the mandate does not require universal masking. It exempts individuals who are eating or drinking or taking medication. It exempts a person who is experiencing difficulty breathing or who is feeling winded. It also excludes individuals who cannot wear a mask due to an ADA, Americans with Disability Act, uh, due to an ADA-recognized disability. And it also excludes all children under two years old. The mandate makes no effort to explain why, if its purpose is prevention and transmission of serious illnesses, why do we allow for these exceptions? Same thing we've been saying all along nor why a two-year-old is less likely to transmit it than a 62-year-old. Finally, she says, since the CDC did not explain its decision to compromise the effectiveness of its mandate by including exceptions or its decision to limit those exceptions, the court cannot conclude that the CDC articulated a rational connection between the facts found and the choices made. I've been fighting this. <laughs> since, since it happened. And here in Texas, uh, I, you know, one restaurant owner after the other, you know, when the person at the front would tell me I had to wear a mask in order to get a seat, uh, that didn't start until, um, let's see, that was about, um, that was almost a year into this. And um, so uh, when they started doing that, uh, I said, well, get me the owner. Because we weren't, you know, I was trying to help uh, local businesses. And uh, so I said, give me the owner. And he came out and I said, look at this. These people are sitting here with masks off for hours while they're eating. And you're telling me I got to put a mask on to walk five seconds to the table. I've already been standing here for a long time not wearing a mask. So you're all going to die anyway. I said, do you really want to tell me that that works? No, I'm not going to tell you that works. I'm going to tell you better do it or I'm going to call the police. I said, fine, I'll leave. And you'll never see me again. Never see me again. I have to move out of this place if I ever want to go to another restaurant. Because I had that happen over and over again. I'm not going to compromise 
my conscience or my integrity. I will keep my word to these restaurant owners here in Austin, and I will never go in their places of business again. If they are going to sell the rope that hangs them, as Lennon said these businesses would do, then let them hang. Let them hang. The sooner the better, as far as I'm concerned. So Delta is slammed on social media after calling COVID a seasonal virus. No, no, it's not going to be seasonal. It's permanent. And we're all going to die. And so you got NPR and all the media, and you got these, uh, you know, OCD people on social media coming after them. Look, it's just politics. And even the politics is not seasonal. They're not even going to wait for after the election. No, it's going to be on all the time. Not even the politics of the pandemic as a season. It's now going to be nonstop, evidently. Uh, they had written, this is what got them in trouble. They said, we're relieved to see the U.S. mask mandate lift to facilitate global travel. Because, you know, everybody else, nobody else in the world is doing this kind of nonsense like uh, the U.S. government is doing. We are the epicenter of the tyranny, just like we're the epicenter of the genetic code injections, just like we're the epicenter of the people who are trying to start World War III and nuclear war. It's all coming from the U.S. We're the epicenter of the uh, Sodom-go-Marxist agenda as well. You almost feel like we're living in, I don't know, <laughs> Babylon or something. Huh? Babylon B. Uh, anyway. Uh, <laughs> Hans, are we the bad guys? I don't <laughs> think so. Uh, but, you know. It's uh, what they said. I interrupted what they said. We're relieved to see the mask mandate lift to facilitate global travel as COVID-19 has transitioned to an ordinary seasonal virus. And so all of the propaganda press was over them. NPR especially uh, said, we turned to social media to dispute the claim and call out the lack of scientific evidence behind it. Well, okay. You give me your scientific evidence first. You first, NPR. Please, been waiting for it for 769 days. And what you've given me is not science. It's orders. It's authority figures. Just like you've been selling the climate MacGuffin using authority figures. You're going to hide the numbers, hide the decline. You don't want people to see your data. Now, just believe me because I'm an expert. Delta was forced to update its statement, telling NPR that it had to do so for clarity and accuracy and declining to comment further. Delta's new statement now reads, We are relieved to see the U.S. mask mandate lift in order to facilitate global travel as COVID-19 transitions to, not a seasonal virus, to a more manageable respiratory virus with better treatment and vaccines. There you go. Bow the knee. Bow the knee. You become slaves because you refuse to stand on your feet. Enslaved to all of this stuff. Self-enslavement. Self-censorship. And, of course, Canada's mask mandate, whatever happens, remains in place. They talk about that on Lifeside News. Again, even they don't talk about the fact there's still a jab mandate for going across the border. Uh, so, yeah, it's... um. The Minister of Transportation there's name is Omar Algebra, kind of like algebra, uh, based on his calculations, <laughs> except that uh, algebra has no proof for his theorems. Um, <laughs> he's going to keep that thing on. And so, you know, breathe in, breathe deeply, breathe in the microplastic. 
Study shows most people now have microplastics deep in their lungs. I mentioned this the other day. Uh, the study was done by the Science of Total Environment. Researchers in the UK looked at lung tissue from study participants, and they found microplastics in all regions of the lungs, including the deeper sections. This is the first time that microplastics have been found in human lung tissue samples uh, using spec uh, spectroscopy. It's the micro FTIR is the instrument. They said um, uh, that these uh, small microplastics were identified within all lung region samples with the majority being fibrous and fragmented. Hmm. The researchers did not confirm the source of the microplastic contamination. The plastic fibers found in the lungs are commonly used in surgical masks, but we don't want to connect that dot. If we connected that dot, we'd be in trouble. Uh, so I guess, you know, when I look at this, I even have a question as to whether or not these microplastics, we're talking about things that are very, very small. Um, as small as four, uh, microns, micrometers, right? And so when we're looking at something that is very, very small, remember when we talked about the mask study in Australia, 2002, uh, they'd already done the study. 2002 was when SARS was happening and people in Asia were putting the masks on and in Australia, New South Wales, they said, uh, these masks don't do anything to protect people. And if you sell them as protection, Mike Adams, you are going to be fined $100,000 for fraud. And they said even the N95 masks, after 20 minutes, don't do anything. Assuming that they had a good seal, they don't do anything. Because uh, what happens is it gets saturated with spittle. And then the air pressure, as you're talking and breathing, pushes out that spittle into smaller particles that remain airborne longer and travel farther. And so the question I have is on the same you know, way, is that happening with the microplastics? Are, are, are these masked idiots, are they breathing out microplastics into the air? Are they shedding their microplastics as well as everything else? Uh, I don't know. They said they identified 39 microplastics in 11 of the 13 lung tissues with an average of three microplastics per sample. And these people are very afraid to tie this to the masks, so they're not going to tell you how many of these people wear masks or what frequency they wear the masks. They just said, hey, look, uh, 11 out of 13 people had uh, a lot of these microplastics. There were 39 different microplastics, but the four that were most universal I had the largest quantity of. The first one was polypropylene. You find that in carpets, clothing, automotive plastics, and surgical masks. Now, one of those things is being kept right up against people's faces. What would that be? Are, are people sticking their face right up against the automotive plastics and breathing all day? Or do you have your face buried in the carpet or your clothing? No, but you do have it buried in your surgical mask that contains polypropylene. And uh, so they said in 2020, the amount of disposable face masks littered into the environment increased by a staggering 9,000%. Billions of people strapped polypropylene masks to their face every day for two years and sucked their air through plastic fibers for eight hours or more. To not have discovered plastic in lungs 
would have been a surprise. Researchers in the study continued to recommend the use of plastic masks, however, despite the risk of inhalation because they don't want to oppose the system. The body does not like things that cause inflammation, uh, said um, a thoracic surgeon and assistant professor of thoracic surgery at St. John's Cancer Institute. Uh, his name is um, uh, Osita Onuga. And he said, um, the real question is, what does something within the body do? The body doesn't like things that cause inflammation and things that are foreign, like plastic. So if it leads to chronic inflammation, that's where you can have things that develop years down the road. It's just like people developed lung disease, cancer, like I mentioned Steve McQueen with asbestos. Well, that's essentially these, these kids in Canada. Many of them were complaining, said, it feels like I'm breathing in cat hair. And they found out that the particles on those particular masks are very, very loose. It's graphene, other things like that. Uh, that's going to have very serious conditions for them. It is far worse to inhale these microplastics than it is to ingest them. Uh, so they conclude by saying it won't take a genius to figure out that strapping an endless supply of microplastics to the entrance of your lungs increases your chance for breathing them in. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We're going to take a break. Before we do, real quickly, I just want to uh, respond to some of the comments and some of the tips on uh, Rockfin. By the way, if you want to go to Rockfin, you can find The David Knight Show. We're here live for free Monday through Friday. If that works for you, you can watch it there. Uh, we, you can also watch it at DLive, at Odyssey, uh, and we're also on Twitter. Uh, but, um, you know, we monitor the feed here on Rockfin. Uh, Joel Hayes left a tip. Thank you very much, Joel. I don't care what they say. Oh, you're fantastic. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people don't like me. Uh, keep on keeping on, David. Oh, and uh, I went out for Eli Willie. <laughs> that's, that's what I called uh, Eli Lilly yesterday. I said, that's going to be something that is going to come back to haunt me. I'm going to be calling him Eli Willie for the longest time. Uh, much love from Orlando. Well, thank you, Joel. Uh, Johnny Vips, thank you for the tip. And congratulations, David, this time for factually correctly inferring on your show this Tuesday that I am the Johnny from and in Denmark who's as frequent as possible live phone calls to your show on InfoWars in 2020. Uh, mainly you, the great Tony Arterburn, and the then great Harrison Smith fielded. Keep up the great work and show improvement, especially in restoring live phone calls. <laughs> yeah, we, we want to try to do that. We'll have to see uh, what we can do when we got more bandwidth. And thank you for the tip, uh, Christian Jackson. We're going to take a break and we will be right back. Here's where you can find us and how you can support. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Port us. 
the common man. They created common core to dumb down our children. They created common past to track and control us. Their commons project to make sure the commoners own nothing and the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. TheDavidKnightShow.com Let's take a quick look at headline news. By the way, in the third hour, we're going to be joined uh, by uh, a lady who has uh, worked very hard in Arizona to do a grassroots movement to take back freedoms. And uh, she was recommended to me by Sheriff Hathaway. I think you're going to be interested in her story as to what's going on. Unfortunately, she couldn't find a lot of local officials other than Sheriff Hathaway uh, to uh, stand with her. Uh, so she's taking a different approach now uh, since there wasn't really any interest for the local officials to stand against uh, uh, the state government and in support of our freedoms, except for Sheriff Hathaway. Uh, so she'll be joining us in the third hour. Let's talk a little bit about um, headline news here. We have, uh, you know, 420, the day that they celebrate marijuana, uh, has, uh, was yesterday. I didn't talk about it. It's really kind of become a non-story now since they started decriminalizing it in so many different places. Uh, but Joe Biden says on 420 that no one should be jailed for using drugs. Wow. Wow. You mean uh, everybody gets the same privileges as Hunter? You know, we, we just do whatever we <laughs> doesn't matter, right? We can use, you know, marijuana, meth, any of this stuff, uh, you know, alcohol, cocaine, just like your son. Uh, well, I don't know if I really believe him because, you know, as I've mentioned before, Biden, before he became a senile old grandpa, <laughs> that's his new reinvention of himself. In his initial incarnation, <laughs> he was one of the most authoritarian people I've ever seen in my life. It was Biden who bragged about, and actually it was true back in 1984, he and Strom Thurmond put together civil asset forfeiture. He invented that lie. And when you stop and think about that, you know, the guy who invented the lie of civil asset forfeiture. We're going to charge your inanimate property with committing a crime, but not you. Don't worry. We're not coming after you. We're just taking the stuff from you. We're punishing you. But uh, it's the property that did the crime. And, and if you want to get it back, you're going to have to sue us and prove that the property is innocent. Good luck with that. That kind of evil prevarication was the kind of stuff that Biden specialized in. And when you talk about the mass incarceration and the uh, you know, of 
largely a black prison population because they started going after users, not necessarily just dealers, and locking people up with mandatory minimums based on the quantity of what they had or other things like that. But that whole mass incarceration where we locked up more people, uh, not just in terms of percentage of the population, but in terms of actual numbers, more people than any other country in the world. Well, that that is also coming from Joe Biden. And so now on the anniversary of 420, he thinks no one should be jailed for using drugs. Yeah, he didn't just write, he didn't just support the war on drugs. He wrote it. He wrote it. He didn't think that Reagan and uh, Bush, number one, were draconian enough, so he helped them out with all this stuff. Yeah, that's the hypocrisy of this guy. And so virtually nobody showed up to hear him, as I mentioned, only about 50 people in a, uh, uh, looks like a nursing home. These people are all going to die, I guess. <laughs> uh, 50 people in New Hampshire, uh, a captive audience maybe. <laughs> they can't go. He goes to them, goes to the nursing home where they can't get out. You know, they're locked in because of COVID. And uh, <laughs> they're going to bring some people in who are sick with something uh, to kill these people and blame it on COVID. Anyway, um, this is, uh, you know, this is uh, the empty suit Biden talking to empty seats. And uh, there was a lot of trolling on social media. Monica Crowley says, unless you mean tens of millions from China, Russia, and Ukraine, in which case it's at least 10% for the big guy. Because what he said was, I was listed as the poorest man in Congress for 36 years. And she says, well, you know, everybody's saying, oh, seriously, you know, after what we're seeing from Hunter, you know, first he's going to tell us that, you know, he doesn't want to put people in jail. He wants everybody to be able to use any drugs as much as they want, just like his son. And uh, he's like us. He's very, very poor. Uh, and so she says, unless you're talking about the 10% for the big guy, says Monica Crowley, uh, another a uh, person on social media, Jaffro, says, so $80,000 a month from your son probably made up for that. And don't forget the $1.5 billion from China. Don't worry, you're set now. Uh, another listener says, is that where the uh, 10% for the big guy comes in? Because you are uh, the poorest man in Congress. Uh, another one, Biden's called Biden's Easter Bunny. I like their handle there. Uh, hence the um, extracurricular financial activities abroad. Uh, K. Lloyd Ricks says, easy to do when all your money is off the books. Uh, Damo Gordo says, just purchased a $47 million property. Oh, yeah, that struggle is real, isn't it, big guy? And uh, another person says, yeah, your net worth in 2020 is estimated to be $9 million. Poorest man in Congress. Um, just maybe the biggest liar, the most authoritarian. Uh, as I pointed out, uh, Trump has been silent on a lot of things. He's been silent about his judge. He's been silent about the fact that uh, his endorsed candidate, Morgan Ortegas in Tennessee, a carpet-bagging Democrat, if ever there was one, has been kicked off of the ballot soundly in Tennessee. First, uh, you had a law that was passed that would require that uh, candidates have to be residents for three years. Uh, and that was passed by state senators and representatives who have to be residents for three years before they become state senators or representatives. So they applied the same standard to these 
congressional carpetbagger wannabes uh, like Morgan Ortegas. And then the state Republican Party had something to say about this as well. The Republican Party's bylaws require that a candidate has to vote in three of the past four GOP primaries, as well as to actively participate in the state or local Republican parties. Moreover, the state legislature passed the bill last month that required the candidates to have lived in the state and the district that they want to represent for at least three years before the election. Uh, she didn't live in either one. She didn't live in the state. And then even after she lived in the state, she moved to a different district than she wanted to run for. And so the Republican Party can put in whatever they want to in terms of rules because it's a private organization. It's a club and you ain't in it, essentially. <laughs> Even though you're a registered Republican, you ain't in this club, folks. Uh, this club is tightly knit at the top. And so she does have a point about that. Uh, but uh, she's clearly not somebody that represents Tennessee. Uh, clearly not. A state GOP's executive committee has the authority to disqualify candidates from the primary ballot for failing to adhere to the party's bylaws. This is how they control the elections. You see, they make it virtually impossible. The Democrats and the Republicans make it impossible to run as a third-party candidate, all the signature requirements and all this other kind of stuff in every one of the states. And then, um, you know, uh, that's for parties as well as for independent candidates. Then if you want to go through the official party stuff, well, they have many different ways that they can kick you out. And this is just one of them. Uh, the executive committee can look at it and say, nah, I don't think so. I don't think so. We're not going to let this person run for office. And um, in this particular case, they had not just Ortegas, but they also had Robbie Starbuck who had moved there, Baxter Lee, uh, had, for some reason. All these people decided that it was just going to be a pushover to move to Tennessee and get into Congress. I don't know what the deal is. And so that's one of the reasons why they pushed back on this pretty hard. It's like almost like they were targeted by uh, these celebrities and Trump. Uh, so you have um, <laughs> uh, she responded and said, President Trump believes that I'm the best person to fight for his America first agenda in middle Tennessee in Congress. And I'm working hard to ensure my fellow Tennesseans, including uh, these uh, members understand why. And so as they look at this, they said, well, um, you know, the thing is, um, you were very critical of Trump. Uh, you supported Jeb Bush. Uh, you are friends with Democrats. As a matter of fact, um, you know, powerful Democrats she had cozied up to. As a matter of fact, her wedding was officiated by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, she is really an inside Democrat. I mean, even the people who love Darth Bader Ginsburg, right? Even there's a lot of people on the left and Democrats who, who love her. But, you know, if all those people who loved her were able to get her to officiate at their weddings, she would never have been able to do anything, right? <laughs> so dearly loved was she by the left. So this is a lady who doesn't just admire Ginsburg, but she's connected inside the Democrat Party. Isn't that interesting? Uh, but, you know, she's all about Trump and Republicans, right? Well, the, I can understand the Trump part. Uh, so <laughs> the, one of the people, uh, the Republican who spearheaded the legislation that got passed, not within the Republican Party, but the legislation that was passed, uh, said, I voted for Trump and I supported him and I'll vote for Trump as long as he lives. But I don't want him coming here to tell me who to vote for. Well, I don't know. I guess 
you know, he told you to lock down and to destroy any non-essential middle-class businesses on Main Street. You guys didn't have a problem with that, did you? This is what I don't understand about Republicans. They just go along with it because it's Trump. Uh, I don't understand that. Anyway, um, now I got a lot of a lot of issues with Trump, as you can tell. Uh, Trump spokesperson Taylor Butterwich uh, said that um, they responded by calling the GOP people who don't want to allow this carpet bagging Democrat liberal who was married by Ginsburg. They respond, the Trump people respond by calling those Republicans rhinos, Republicans in name only. <laughs> not not uh, Morgan Ortegas, but the Republicans who said, no, we want to have people who are actual conservatives, uh, not just celebrity frauds because Trump said so. Uh, so he responded and said this, the Trump spokesperson, about a witch. Uh, there are rhinos in Tennessee trying to quietly pull strings and illegally remove Trump's endorsed candidate Morgan Ortegas from the ballot. And um, so she responded and said, our team is evaluating the options before us. Look, for some reason, you know, she has access to Ginsburg and all these other Democrats. She loves Jeb. She is dearly loved by all these billionaires who are getting into politics, not just Trump, but also uh, Oracle's um, uh, Larry Ellison gave her a million dollars to push back on the law and to challenge the law, but there really isn't any lawsuit that she can do against the executive committee of the Republican Party there. It's kind of checkmate. But you have to ask yourself, what is it about this woman? Yeah, she looks like a model, uh, and Trump loves to surround himself with attractive women, but what is the issue? That she's so dearly loved by Larry Ellison and by Ginsburg and by Jeb Bush and all what is it that she's trying to come in and, and do? This is the way they put their puppets in. And you should be very, very concerned about her and about other endorsements of Trump like Dr. Oz. Uh, this is he is a snake. He is a Trojan horse. And he does not have America's interest in 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 hand. He doesn't have uh, the interests of uh, the family, of parents, of conservatives, of libertarians. When you look at what he did with the LGBT issues, right, the only involvement that the Trump administration had in terms of this transgender stuff that was happening in the schools, that was put in by the Obama administration. And what did they do? They used money, federal money, to try to coerce people into putting boys in the locker rooms and the showers. And so when the Trump administration came in, they said, no, we're not going to blackmail people financially with Title IX. But they understood, as you should as well, that's the way that Washington gets it done, is with money. And that's what Trump was doing with his executive orders. He was putting the money behind the color of law executive orders to unleash this public health bureaucracy against us. They understand that it's the money giving money or taking money away. But they never criticized the actual practice. You have to understand that the Trump administration did not come out and oppose the idea that you're going to put boys in the girls' showers and locker rooms. What they said was, we're not going to have the federal government involved, and we are going to let the states decide. Well, that's fine. That's constitutional. Uh, but um, you do have a bully pulpit. And you do have the ability to speak, and you ought to use that to tell people 
uh, what you think about an issue that's important. So it's clearly not an important issue to Trump or the Trump administration. Again, they just pulled back and took the neutral position and coasted. Not doing any fighting, not doing any heavy lifting. And so, um, uh, you know, these are the type of people that he gets behind, these establishment shills. I mean, she is a facade if ever there was one. You know, get somebody who is, she's completely bipartisan in her gender uh, identification. <laughs> she's equally comfortable with both Democrats and Republicans. She can get in bed with either party. And, uh, you know, what does she really represent? So, anyway, on that committee, by the way, had 17 people on the committee, the Republican Party, only three of them uh, voted for her to be on the ballot. The other 14 said no. And then we have this thing that is coming. Uh, this is Piers Morgan versus Donald Trump. This is kind of like, <laughs> again, watching Iran and Iraq fight or you know, watching uh, uh, the Nazis in Ukraine fighting Vladimir Putin and Russia. <laughs> May they both lose. But this is kind of interesting the way Piers Morgan is uh, stabbing Trump in the back and using Trump for his own purposes here. Uh, this guy, he's, he has used Trump to uh, his, his position on The Apprentice, winning The Apprentice. He has been living off of that for the longest time. And now, I guess he could say A2, Piers. Okay, Piers, I'm ready. A former president in denial. I'll be completely straight with you to your face. I think I'm a very honest man. Much more honest than you, actually. Really? Yeah. It was a free and fair election. You lost. Only a fool would think You think I'm a fool? I do now, yeah. With respect. Excuse me. Okay, with respect. The legislature. Excuse me. The most explosive interview of the year. I don't think you're real. This I really is just I'm not like very dishonest. Just Let's finish up the interview. Morgan versus Turn Trump. the camera off. Very dishonest. Only oh boy. on Talk TV. Oh, boy. It's like, it's like a WWE thing, isn't it? The dramatic music and everything. <laughs> and the way that they cut this thing. Uh, this fight of the century coming up. You know, it's going to be a tag team match in a steel cage right there. <laughs> what a bunch of sensationalized garbage. Uh, uh, again, you know, if, but if you want to get Trump uh, upset, then talk about the election. Because, again, that's his ego. And that's his money that is on the line and his power, of course. Uh, so as uh, some of the tabloid papers like The Sun are saying, the ex-president reached his boiling point after peers blamed Trump's refusal to admit defeat in the 2020 vote for last year's deadly riots at the Capitol. Trump shocked the TV crew as he shouted, turn the cameras off. He screamed that his interview was his interviewer was dishonest, a fool. And he barked at the shocked TV crew, turn the cameras off. He also dubbed Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell stupid. His former Vice President Mike Pence foolish and weak. Well, you picked him. Um, <laughs> the 75-minute interview will be screened as part of the launch of Piers Morgan's new show. Yeah, this is uh, Piers Morgan using him <laughs> for his own benefit. Uh, they've been friends for 15 years. Yeah, I mean, you know, they were both on the same side when it came to guns, right? Uh, Trump said, well, we, you know, take the guns, do the due process later. You know, the red flag stuff. He also set the precedent for gun control by executive order. You would think that Piers Morgan would love him because, you know, that was the whole purpose of Piers Morgan coming to the U.S. and 
getting his show on CNN so he could lecture us about gun control. So you'd think that he would love Trump because Trump's done more to set some very, very dangerous precedents than the Democrats were able to do because people just gave him a pass. It was 40 chess, remember? As Alex would tell you, 40 chess. <laughs> yeah, you just set a precedent, say, you know, I think you're crazy. We're going to take your guns. Maybe we'll do due process. Maybe, I don't know. And, of course, uh, as a president, I can just sign away your God-given liberties that are specifically protected by the Constitution I swore to uphold. I can just sign that away. First president to do that and to get away with it. It was necessary for it to be a Republican. It was necessary even for it to be Trump. Not, not even somebody like Jeb Bush, I think, could have gotten away with that. Uh, signing away your, your liberties by executive order? Seriously? But, you know, it's Trump, and, and so we know he loves America because we love him. And, and so he would never stab us in the back over gun control. Uh, he's not on board with Piers Morgan about that. So, uh, yeah, give him a pass. It's 4D chess. Um, in this, uh, they say the clash began before the interview. Piers says the president stared at him with undisguised fury and was almost foaming at the mouth. Again, this is nothing but politics as professional wrestling. So this is it's actually kind of comical to look at this. And again, I don't have a dog in this fight. I despise both of them, uh, Piers Morgan especially. The president snarled at him and says, what the F is this? Trump said to Piers, you're not real. You're a fake. To which Piers replied, no, I'm brutally honest. Well, you know, I think we should have had some brutally honest responses from Trump. I would have liked to have seen Trump treat Piers Morgan the way that Jeremy Clarkson treated him. <laughs> they were on the Concord, and he, he uh, poured cold water over his head. <laughs> took a picture of cold water and just poured it over his head on the supersonic uh, Concord. And Travis, didn't, um, didn't uh, Jeremy Clarkson, didn't he punch Piers Morgan once? Wasn't that Piers Morgan? I think so. He yeah, might have slapped so. him. But yeah, he, slapped him. Yeah. There was physical contact there. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's what would have been good for Trump to do. <laughs> Why not? I mean, hey, this whole thing is set up as a, as a professional wrestling thing. Give him what he wants. You know, get physical with the guy. That's what Piers Morgan really wants. Uh, just getting upset with him, you know, they, they turned this into, um, of course they, you know, that would have made him even bigger. Uh, but, um, turning this thing into <laughs> this funny, dramatic thing. Yeah. You lost. He shouts at, uh, president Trump in the 32nd uh, clip. Meanwhile, Trump remains a fundraising juggernaut says Breitbart. He brought in $19 million in quarter one. And he has $124 million on hand. That's why I say, you know, Piers went at him at his sore spot. This is all about the election. And it's all about the election. It's all about his ego. It's all about his money. It's all about his power. Uh, that's why he's endorsing people like Dr. Oz, like Ortegas. That's why he's throwing people like Mo Brooks and Thomas Massey under the bus because they're real. These are guys who have pushed back against the unconstitutional orders. These are guys who have pushed back against the unlimited spending that Trump did. And, uh, you know, so they've got to be taken out. Um, again, going back to Taylor Butowich, the guy who was commenting about uh, the removal of Morgan Ortegas by the Republicans in Tennessee, communications director for Trump and for his Save America PAC, where they're raking in the money. 
said President Trump's political organizations are positioned to carry his America First message into battleground races across the nation. Why? Well, because, as Roger Stone pointed out, right after the election, uh, those, those clips that were done by, what was it, I think is a company out of, a film company out of Denmark or something. Uh, I wasn't there when, well, he wasn't there, actually. He wasn't uh, um, around the studio at the time that uh, that documentary thing was being done. He'd had another one done, Get Me Roger Stone, and towards the end of that, uh, he was physically there at the InfoWars studio, and I'd see the film crew around there with him. But I never saw these other guys, but they were the ones who dumped a lot of this footage to the Washington Post, and one of the things that they had was right after the election as Steve Pachinik was selling the false hope of the sting, you know, the idea that this is all a sting that Trump had put out blockchain watermarked ballots and they knew who had rigged the election and they knew how it was rigged and the uh, uh, CISA organization was running this and they had 20,000 National Guard that were already out there arresting people two days after the election. You know, he got on with Owen and uh, pushed that lie and they continued to push that lie because it got millions of views. And at the time, you see now that uh, you had clips of Roger Stone saying, we're going to make a ton of money off of this election thing. It's going to be like falling off a log. And Trump is still raking it in. That's what this is about, folks. It's about a big grift. Because when you look at the border, the Border Patrol Union is saying that Governor Abbott should absolutely use constitutional invasion powers to control the border because a temporary measure that was put on because of the COVID crisis, the only time that any measure was really done to try to mitigate some of this. And of course it didn't mitigate much, did it? Uh, you know, I don't understand, frankly, cause I haven't dealt into this because I know that nobody's really going to do anything about it. So I haven't looked at this, um, uh, this, uh, border rule, that was put in to uh, control things for, um, for the uh, pandemic that is going to come off. And there's a big mass of people that are building up at the border come across. And they said 200,000 illegal border crossings per month. How do you call this anything other than an invasion? Said the president of the National Border Patrol Council. He said, we're at a breaking point. We've got miles upon miles of border that just aren't patrolled because we have to deal with, frankly, an invasion. Okay, so they don't have patrols, and they don't have a wall. Oh, how did that happen? And I said from the very beginning, I said, well, you don't even necessarily need a wall. Uh, you could declare it an invasion, which is what the Border Patrol is saying right now, and say, we're going to get control of our borders. But they didn't do it. And I said, you know, if Trump wants to keep his promises, he could bring home the troops from Afghanistan and Iraq, and he could station them along the border as a deterrent. And you could stop it for the most part. I mean, nothing is ever going to be 100%, but that'd be even more effective than building a wall. You could actually even have the military build the wall. You could actually even take the money out of the military budget by saying, we've got to protect our borders instead of using the military to protect everybody else's borders. Instead of like Biden is doing, he's now using the uh, crisis, the border crisis of Ukraine and Russia to push us into World War III and a nuclear war. That's how important borders and other countries are to our presidents. 
while they care nothing about our border. Oh, unless, unless you don't get vaccinated, unless you're not wearing a mask, you see. And so, I don't know. I thought Trump fixed the border. People kept telling me, shut up. He fixed the border. He put a wall in. Well, then why do we have a problem? Now we get people to come back and say, oh, he put the wall in. Look at this. And it's like, no, he didn't. He fixed a couple of places, but he didn't really extend it. I said, well, if you want to, I know, you know, he said, well, we're going to have, a, we'll have a big, beautiful door and our big, beautiful wall. Well, you know, if we've got a border that's 2,000 miles long, uh, we have perhaps a 1,500-mile-wide door. Is the way you could look at it. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's just a door. <laughs> it's an open door policy because that's what's there at the border. But I'm saying this because, I, and I don't even think that that's the issue. The issue is that the Republicans want it. The Republicans want, the Republicans and business interests want cheap labor. The Democrats want voters and they think they're going to get them. Although now they're being surprised that there's a lot of Hispanic voters that are conservative. Uh, but um, they want to have, they want to bring in people who are poor so that they can control them. And they would like to bring in people from, these, these are people who are coming in from all over the world. They're coming in from every country you can imagine. Uh, countries that are at war with us, countries that have terrorists who would like to attack us. And so they would love to have them come in as well. Because if these people do attack us, they can use that as an opportunity to extend more control over us. Not to protect us, just to control us. So he said, uh, I mean, we're dealing with countries all over the world, said the uh, Border Patrol president. And a lot of these countries want to do the U.S. harm. So if you were to declare that and to bring the National Guard in and the National Guard immediately expelled people that crossed the border illegally, then why not? If the Constitution allows it, which it apparently does, why not exercise that authority? Well, because there isn't any real interest in either party to doing that. You know, the, uh, the posturing of the Democrats is one of open borders, and the posturing of the GOP is one of controlled borders, but they don't do anything about it. Uh, Greg Abbott would have to declare the border crisis an invasion in order to invoke the state constitutional powers to protect itself if the federal government is derelict in the duty. And so Greg Abbott says, well, I'd really like to do this, but I have to wait for my Republican Attorney General, Ken Paxton, to write an opinion. Okay, I no, got to be able to do this. I, I don't know. So he's passing the buck around. Uh, the Biden administration has been so inept or apathetic in the plight of Texas and other border states that it very well could rise to a violation of Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution, uh, wrote um, uh, Kraus, State Representative Matt Kraus. He says, so today I asked the Attorney General for an official opinion on whether that violation has occurred here in Texas. But the Attorney General doesn't want to jump on that hot potato. And so he says, well, I don't have a timeline on when that opinion will be published. I really don't know when we're going to get around to that. In Arizona, you've had the attorney general there, Mark Brinovich, uh, issued an opinion back in February, beginning of February, uh, talks about two definitions and whether the federal government has been derelict in its duty to protect. He said the on-ground, on-the-ground violence and the lawlessness at Arizona's border caused by cartels and gangs is extensive, well-documented, and persistent. It can satisfy the definition of actually, actually being invaded and invasion under the U.S. Constitution. 
And every time I talk about this, I just want to say, you know, when you have people who want to legitimately come here and build a life and go through the legal processes or whatever, uh, they need to understand, just as the uh, bereaved father on Long Island whose daughter was murdered by uh, the MS-13 gang out of El Salvador, they were from El Salvador. They came through an open border that doesn't vet people. And he said, I came here to America. He went pretty much as far north as he could go, up to New York, Long Island, to try to get away from El Salvador you know, and from the MS-13 gang. And yet, if you've got an open border where anybody can walk in, uh, that means that MS-13 can walk in. And the federal government and the law enforcement uh, in that area were so afraid to do anything about the MS-13 gangs. I mean, these are guys who walk around literally with MS-13 tattooed on their forehead just so you could see them, right? I mean, <laughs> it's not hard, not hard to find these guys. Uh, but because they didn't want to do anything about DACA, they said, well, you know, DACA protects them. Well, who protects you? Who protects your family? Who protects your family even as an illegal immigrant who's trying to get away from these thugs? See, he would have been better protected if he would have gone through the legal process that would have excluded these MS-13 people. And who would have removed them uh, and not say, well, we can't do anything about it because of their age? We can't do anything about these MS-13 gang members who've got MS-13 tattooed on their forehead because of their age, and they killed his daughter. That's where we are. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Stay with us. Deceit. Telling the truth is a revolutionary act. You're listening to The David Knight Show. Let's talk a little bit about the economy. We have uh, existing home sales are now starting to slump as the interest rates are going up significantly. Uh, Two-year lows as the mortgage rates are soaring. There's been an 8.6% month-over-month drop in March from February. 
Uh, all cash sales are now starting to uh, escalate in terms of percentage because people are having trouble getting financing, evidently. Uh, they accounted for 28% of transactions in March. With rising mortgage rates, cash sales made up a larger fraction of transactions, climbing to the highest share since 2014. Housing inventory at the end of March totaled uh, 950,000 units, up just under 12% from February, but down 9.5% from a year ago. There's a lot of different factors here, and it's hard really to predict what's going to happen. As we see the supply of houses going down and as it becoming uh, more and more unaffordable, I mean, it's still, there's the other issue and why the supply of houses is coming down is because of these supply chain problems that are there. So you have inflation, you have high interest rates, but then you also have supply problems, and that's something we haven't seen before. I really don't know how to predict this. I mean, when I look at all of this, I look at the ridiculous levels of houses that we're looking at, both here and where we want to move to. Uh, but it's just, you know, you you got a sticker shock when you look at it, but you got to, you know, understand that you're dealing in uh, kind of a different currency, even the way that this has uh, escalated. You know, it's kind of like... Uh, you have Australian dollars, you have Canadian dollars, you have U.S. dollars, and uh, you know, uh, one is um, uh, maybe thirty uh, percent more than the other one. You know, just and, and that's kind of what you're seeing. You got real estate dollars, and they're really kind of crazy. My concern is for the next generation, because wages, of course, are not going up that much. I mean, if you're already in the housing market, you know, you can exchange. It's like you're already in this currency that's going crazy in relation to other currencies. But if you're in that currency already, you can kind of swap out in that currency. But I worry about what's going to happen to people who are not in the housing market. Not just young people, but anybody who's not in the housing market. Um, this is something that is going to be very disruptive to society, but not as disruptive as what's happening to our food supplies. I'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, an analyst predicted transactions to contract by 10% this year. And for home prices to readjust and for gains to grow around 5%. I mean, we're really in uncharted waters here. We don't really know because this is not just inflation. It's not just stagflation. Uh, again, they've compounded all this stuff with the supply chain issues. Lawrence Lepard, uh, a uh, gold um, analyst, uh, says it's just a matter of time before gold rises by a factor of five times. He expects to see the price of gold go up by five times. We're talking about $10,000 an ounce, if that were to be true. And this is how he makes the case. And it is kind of interesting because I've been watching the disconnect between paper gold and physical gold because it's so easy to, I mean, you can set up a gold IRA. You hear people advertise that all the time. As a matter of fact, Tony helps people do it. He doesn't do it, but he gets you in contact with somebody if you want to do something like that. But, you know, it's a hassle to do something like that. And I just took the easy way and uh, got some of these ETFs, which is paper gold, because it's, it's very liquid and you can buy that from any broker, that type of thing. And I started looking at this and it's like, well, that's not really, that's significantly under uh, the, um, uh, the ratio uh, to the price of gold. You know, it's supposed to be about uh, 1% of the price of gold. And um, so, you know, it's like $19 a share when gold is, $1,900 a share. And, um, uh, but you know, you can sell it on the exchange very quickly, but does it really have 
any value. And that was one of the things that he did in his gold analysis. He looked at how paper gold is perhaps kind of phony. You know, it hasn't really been as volatile as gold, but it hasn't gone up high either. It's kind of just gone horizontal. Uh, London Gold Pool, he said, tried to manipulate the price of gold from 1962 to 1968, somewhat successfully, but ultimately physical gold demand overwhelmed the manipulation scheme and it failed. But over the past 20 years, he said, there's been a substantial evidence that a similar manipulation scheme has been used by central banks, by the Bank of International Settlement, BIS, that's often called the uh, Central Bank of the Central Banks, and the Fed whereby they sell paper gold contracts to keep gold prices down. He said, gold is the only commodity market where there are large unallocated paper derivatives, which many in the gold community believe that they have been used to suppress and to contain its price. So he said, suffice it to say, many analysts believe that there are between 20 times and 50 times and perhaps as much as 1,000 times more paper claims on each physical ounce of gold in the world today. That's the key thing. Uh, and that's why I, you know, even in my IRA, I just took all the money out of that just sitting there right now. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. But I'm not going to leave this stuff in paper gold. And we're talking about derivatives here. Remember derivatives in 2008? They had real estate derivatives. How did that turn out for everybody? You know, this stuff was put in and pumped up. And, and what he's saying here is that this paper gold that you see, uh, that's out there, these ETFs. You'll see it traded under uh, GLD or uh, let's see, what was the other one? ARIC, was it AUR or something like that? Um, those are the two big popular ones. Uh, he said those are uh, perhaps there's 20 to 50 to maybe 1,000 times more paper out there than there is actually physical gold to back it up. Nobody really knows. Uh, a lot of this stuff is being run out of Shanghai. It's a Shanghai Gold Exchange, SGE, that is really at the epicenter of all this stuff. So how could it possibly go wrong? <laughs> now I look at it and it's like, how could it possibly go right? If all the claims were presented and asked to provide physical ounces, in other words, uh, think about short squeezes in GameStop in 2021, or more, re more recently what we saw with Nickel, he said, uh, there would be either a major force uh, which is what happened recently with nickel, or the gold price would rise to multiples of its current price to match supply with demand. And then he looks at it in a different way. He said, uh, take a look at the decline in U.S. dollars priced in gold terms. So he looks, he graphs out dollars versus gold, and he goes back to the early 1970s. He said, you can see the effect of the raging inflation in the 1970s when gold went from $35 an ounce to $800 per ounce. Note that in $800 an ounce gold in 1980, the U.S. money supply was nearly 55% backed by gold reserves. So that's an interesting metric that he's got here. He said, if the price of gold had been $1,459 in 1980, every dollar would have had 100% gold backing. But it only it got up to uh, $800, roughly. So it got up to 55% backing. He said it would have had to go up to uh, $1,459 in 1980 dollars. Uh, he said, so even though we were not legally on a gold standard, the market had effectively taken us halfway, more than halfway there by 1983. 
He said today, in order to obtain the bare minimum of a 30% coverage necessary to have the U.S. Treasury reserves of gold backing the dollar, the price of gold would need to be $23,000 per ounce. <laughs> and to get to the 1980 peak of 55% coverage of the M1 money supply, the price would have to be $42,000 per ounce. But today it's at about $1970 per ounce. He said there's been quite a bit of monetary inflation in terms of gold, to say the least. He says we think that it's just a matter of time until we get that mid-late 1970s five-fold increase in the gold price acceleration. The reason this has not shown up in the gold price is due to the suppression scheme, which until recently was perfected by the Western Central Banks and the gold cartel. Some Bitcoin enthusiasts like to say Bitcoin is going to steal all the gold's monetary premium. Gold bugs laugh at this because there's not much premium in gold to steal. On average, gold costs about $1,200 per ounce to mine, and the sales price of 1970 barely compensates for the capital cost to build mines and to replace reserves. However, if gold were to trade at a much higher price, then perhaps there would be something there to steal for Bitcoin, but he says it's not really even there. And again, that's the amazing thing when you look at this is we look at this paper gold stuff. It's like what we've seen with the central banks saying, all right, you know, we're going to back our currency with gold. And then they start printing and printing, especially the U.S. That's what happened between Bretton Woods 1 and Bretton Woods 2. And um, what we have now is essentially the same thing being done in the private financial market with gold. I mean, there you, you've got the Federal Reserve that's inflating the – uh, the, the paper money, the fiat currency. And now you've got a whole bunch of other people that are out there inflating the uh, gold supply is the way I see it. It's really bizarre. Anyway, uh, so the question is, he points out, you know, the dollars and in, in shaky uh, standing, uh, is it going to be Bitcoin? Is it going to be gold? Is it going to be some other cryptocurrency? Uh, I don't know, but, it, you know, if you... Uh, depending on what you want to do. And I'm not giving you any investment advice, but, um, uh, and, and neither does Tony, actually, he just helps you with transactions. So if you want to find Tony, one of the ways that he's uh, made it easy for you, you can just go to davidknight.gold and they'll take you uh, to Tony's business there. Uh, in Dallas, Texas, they're talking about making it a smart city. Hmm. Seen that a lot of places before, you know, we're supposed to have smart cities everywhere by 2030. As a matter of fact, when we had Agenda 21, if you looked at the map, they had essentially turned uh, this corridor. You know, if you look at things north to south, you've got from San Antonio to Austin to Dallas. They had that as one giant megacity just grown in together. And then they had Houston. And uh, but, you know, the, the three of the four big cities just becoming one giant megacity. And that's what they were doing everywhere. You know, the idea behind Agenda 21, and that was the way the UN first put it out there, they said sometime in the 21st century, we're going to basically get everybody just locked into the cities. And you're not going to live in the suburbs. You're certainly not going to live in rural areas. And uh, then about 2015, when Davos came out with their Great Reset stuff, both they and the UN started talking about 2030 as a date. The UN then renamed Agenda 21 to the UN 2030 Agenda for Sustainability, and a key part of that has always been the smart city stuff. And so this is what Dallas is uh, trying to do, 
You know, I was planning on, before COVID hit, I was going to be going to uh, Canada in the middle of the winter uh, to talk about sidewalk labs, which is what Google was doing with their experiment for smart cities. They'd gotten Toronto to give them uh, an area of town that they're going to run. And they said, well, this is just to save the environment. But a lot of the uh, the eco nuts who signed on to that realized that it wasn't about the environment at all. It was a massive surveillance state that was being set up. They said they're watching everything we do. They're watching even what we throw away. You know, they're monetizing this, but they're also going to use this for other purposes, I'm afraid. And they were right. And so I was going to go up there and uh, do a report, but it got shut down because of what happened with COVID. Afraid I wasn't going to get out of there. <laughs> so well, let's wait and see what happens with this stuff. I think they're getting ready to lock the border. It turns out I, I was right. Um, but what they're going to do in Dallas is they're bragging about this. This is uh, NBC in Dallas, Fort Worth. They're saying, yeah, we're going to have wireless internet access everywhere. It's going to be free Wi-Fi everywhere. Free Wi-Fi. <laughs> That's a good friend of mine went to went to Chick-fil-A when Wi-Fi was just coming out, and they had a sign up and said, free Wi-Fi. And the guy in front of him says, I'll have this, this, and this, and I want some of that free Wi-Fi. And the guy who was taking his order just could not figure out <laughs> what he was talking about. He was going, free Wi-Fi? <laughs> My friend is looking at the sign behind the guy who's taking the order, and he knew exactly what I was trying to say, and he's biting his lip to try to keep from laughing out loud. But, yeah. So now you can get free Wi-Fi. And, and this, this whole smart city thing is for people who are just as clueless as to what this whole agenda is, is the guy who wanted his own free Wi-Fi. So if you're going to buy the free Wi-Fi thing, <laughs> you're going to be the kind of person, just the kind of person they're looking for to move into their smart city. Here's what they have planned for you. Uh, basically, you know, we, we got to do this for the kids because we've got a lot of kids who don't have Internet access. And so we need to get them free Wi-Fi. And so we're going to do things like put street lights up. Oh, that's good. And we'll put it in the poor neighborhoods. That's really good. Give these poor people free Wi-Fi and street lights that will have the free Wi-Fi on top of them. But they'll also have cameras and they'll also have microphones. And they'll be having and they'll use those microphones for gunshot detection, among other things. And oh, they will also be equipped with artificial intelligence. Oh. Oh, okay. You understand what they're doing. They're building your prison in place. And uh, they're telling you that it's a smart city with free Wi-Fi. They're putting you in prison. They're going to use these streetlights with cameras and microphones and artificial intelligence. They're going to be using this to do biometric identification. This is the China plan. We've already seen this implemented in China. It's no conspiracy theory. It is a conspiracy. It's a government conspiracy. It's a globalist government conspiracy. It's already been implemented in China. We know exactly what this is going to be. And let me tell you, they'll be able to, one of the biometric things that they'll be able to identify you with will be your voice. And so they'll be listening and they'll be watching and they'll be, even if they tell you, you've got to put a mask on all the rest of this stuff, they'll still be able to figure out who you are. They can figure out who you are by analyzing the way you walk your gait, they can figure that out. So they'll be able to figure it out with the voices as well as the face. And of course they have uh, AI that can identify even your face with a mask on. Uh, so city council members and city staff are talking about how they're going to set up regulations to manage all that data they're going to be collecting in the smart city. And that's why they have to have 5G. 
regardless of the health issues, they don't care. They've got to have 5G because they've got to have the bandwidth to make the world into a surveillance state where they know and control everything about you. And uh, they said, well, yeah, we don't really know. I mean, we're, we're pouring all this money in, and we just know that if we build it, something really good is going to happen. They don't have any specifics about it. The only thing they can say is, well, you know, we've got a lot of kids in the inner city who don't have Internet. You really think so? You really think so? I mean, don't all those kids have smartphones anyway? Now, that's not the issue. But they say, for now, the city is just spending money without any revenue, and it hopes that one day it'll receive it if it becomes a smart city. Well, they will be getting some globalist funds for that. You can count on that. But that's one part of it. The more important part of this, and we keep seeing this also over and over and over again. Here's yet another article about how you can have a microchip implanted in your hand uh, so that you can use it to buy and sell. Well, where'd we get that idea from? There's, uh, this is coming from Fox 5 in New York City. And, of course, there's nothing in here about this being a mark of the beast system or anything like that. No, no. A hand-implanted microchip could be used for contactless payments. And this is a gee whiz technology article saying, isn't this interesting? It's very cheap and you know, it's technologically possible. And, well, it's coming soon, they say. And we keep seeing this. They keep preparing people for the mark of the beast, don't they? A microchip that can be implanted in people's hands with the goal of making contactless payments easier. An old story. <laughs> it's a 2,000-year-old story. Coming to reality, as you see it, the skin incision for the implant is very small. It's usually only about, only about 7 millimeters long. There's a 25 millimeters in an inch. Uh, and the procedure takes about four minutes. It costs two ninety nine. But don't worry, soon, just like your Wi-Fi, it will be free as well. As a matter of fact, they will probably give you prizes. Yeah, not just free, but chance to win cool prizes, just like they did with the genetic code injection. Get this put in your hand, you could win a prize. And we'll make it free for you. We'll pay for it. How about that? Uh, the implant can be used to pay for a drink on the beach in Rio, a coffee in New York, a haircut in Paris. It can be used wherever contactless payments are accepted. Yeah, that reminds me of what the Chinese said when they were talking about their social credit system. You do what we say, and you get the green light of our traffic light system, you know, green, yellow, and red. You do what we say and keep your green light going, and you can do anything you want to in the world. But if you don't, you won't leave your house. And they said that far before any of this COVID stuff began. And so this is the same way that Fox and um, you know, the globalist government is uh, selling this to you. Yeah, you can get a drink on the beach in Rio, a coffee in New York, a haircut in Paris. All you have to do is just take that mark of the beast there. And then we will do the contactless payment and we'll combine it with the central bank digital currency. And uh, you will do exactly as we say at that point. We're going to take a quick, quick break and we'll be right back. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Decoding the mainstream propaganda. It's the David Knight Show. All right, let's talk a little bit about what is happening to our families, these brave new schools that we have. You know, when I look at what is happening in the schools, uh, it looks just like Brave New World, doesn't it? You know, 1984 has been used as a manual, (laughs) and now Brave New World is uh, being uh, used as a manual as well. Uh, so, uh, in our schools, we have a teacher who has been fired for telling parents about their daughter being transitioned against their will. So the school system fired her because she was a whistleblower for what they were doing. Uh, you know, we got a lot of different bills that are being introduced in various places. We got a bill that's been introduced in Iowa where parents can sue if teachers teach banned curriculum, you know, things like the Marxist CRT um, and the, um, uh, the sodomist LGBT, uh, I think we should call it LGBP, pedophile agenda. These groomer curriculums where they're coming after, uh, you know, showing uh, – showing explicit videos to very young kids and talking to them about, you know, pretending that they have the maturity to decide what gender they're going to be when they're in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, that type of thing. And then physically uh, mutilating them as well. And and so in Iowa, there's a bill pending that parents could sue the teachers if they violate this ban stuff. And I hear the people who are saying, well, we don't want books being banned. Well, I've said before that I hardly recognize uh, Textbooks as being books. And uh, we do ban child pornography, don't we? I mean, everybody except for this recently picked Supreme Court justice kind of agrees that uh, you should go to jail if you're engaging in child pornography, unless you were a teacher. Unless you were a teacher of very young children, in which case is just fine. Because you're something like a medical doctor now or something, right? And so that's not a problem. Yeah, see, the problem is you've got people who are saying, well, you shouldn't be banning any books here. And yet these are the people who want to ban puberty. They want to block puberty. Uh, Do you see the problem there? I mean, we're talking about banning what I consider to be child pornography, the way they're selling this to them. The uh, cartoons that I've shown you produced by this company called Amaze, they're being used to manipulate these kids, to gaslight them, to confuse them about their gender. And uh, they're pornographic, quite frankly. They're very explicit about uh, sexual practices and pushing it. In the same way, Brave New World was doing it. 
You know, it was what the schools were about. It's become a manual. Um, yeah. Uh, Sergeant Calfarter, thank you for the tip. He says, wouldn't Aldous Huxley be proud? Soma High, Ritalin Elementary. That's, that's exactly what we're talking about. You know, drugs, but especially, you know, pushing them into uh, these sexual things. It is exactly a brave new world. So in Iowa, like I said, there, you know, a bill that would let uh, um, the um, parents sue the teachers if they, if they do this stuff. And a lot of, uh, if they usurp parental rights, uh, that is a bill that's come out in Arizona. And the liberals say, well, define parental rights for me. That's not defined in there, you know. Well, I think we know what parental rights are. That means that they are involved in the decisions, that they're informed, and you are transparent in this. And if the parents say stop, you stop. That's what parental rights are. I don't think you're going to get parental rights even with all these bills as long as your kids are in school. This has been their policy from the early 1990s. Uh, again, I've, this story here that I've got is out of Massachusetts, and it was out of Massachusetts in the early 1990s, where the father of a third grader said, well, I think what they're doing in school is a bit too explicit and a bit too early for my daughter. I don't want her in that class. I said, well, you can't. Uh, you can't get her out. You can't opt her out. And so on the day that you know, she was supposed to be taught that, he thought about it, and he got upset, and he went down. He said, I'm here to take my daughter out. And um, he insisted on it. And so they called the police, and they, and they arrested him for trespassing. And then when he went to court, the judge said, well, we have um, – here's what's going on. When you take your child to school, we consider that you have abandoned them to the state, and we will do whatever we wish. And we call that in loco parentis, in place of the parents. And so this type of thing has been going on for a long time. It's just that they're not teaching – heterosexual sex at an age that's too early for the kids, according to the preferences of the parents who know and love the kids best. Instead, they're pushing uh, Sodom and Gomorrah types of perversion. And so Florida is also uh, talking about uh, the parental rights bills, and uh, they have uh, passed some of these aspects. Missouri also has a bill where you can sue if parental rights are violated. Uh, and a parental bill of rights that requires transparency, not that the, so it's, again, it's transparency, not the schools acting as trans parents pushing this stuff. So what is happening in Massachusetts is that as this school continued to do this against the will of the parents, and they were conspiring to cover this up, a teacher saw this happening and let the parents know. And so the school in Massachusetts fired the teacher. School teacher who shared with parents a statement from their daughter about purported gender transition was fired for the communication. Uh, the parents learned that the school in Ludlow, Massachusetts, was also, also was treating their son as a girl in accord with his wishes, according to their complaint. Uh, against several current and former school district officials for violating their parental rights. Uh, the interim superintendent said that uh, she had no comments. But the report that was filed on Give, Send, Go by the teacher who was fired about a year ago, according to her report, uh, she was first put on paid leave for notifying the girl's parents of her gender transition. She's not yet filed litigation against the school, but her lawyer said it was being considered. 
Uh, while it is increasingly common for districts to implement procedures to socially transition students without parental no notification, uh, Ludlow, Massachusetts alleged actions stand out for violating a direct request from parents and making an example out of a whistleblower, uh, said the lawyer who is working with the parents. Going back to the report from the school teacher, she said uh, the daughter was being coached by the school, which initially contacted the parents. But when the parents instructed that their daughter was getting professional help and school officials must not have conversations with her on the topic, school officials declined to comply, even though they had promised to obtain parental consent moving forward. See, they lied and they conspired to gender gaslight this girl. Shortly after, a school counselor told her parents, told, told the teachers, rather, to hide this information from the parents. And a week later, the school counselor reiterated the directive to staff. So she told them twice. But this one teacher forwarded an email from the daughter concerning the situation to her parents. So the um, institute said they're working with the Child and Parental Rights Campaign on the lawsuit on behalf of two families, not just one, but two families. And in one of the families, the school officials were actively transitioning both their 11-year-old daughter and their 12-year-old son without the parents' knowledge and against their wishes. The families are suing for violations of parental rights uh, stemming from district policy prohibiting school staff from sharing information with parents about a student's gender identity and efforts to promote the identity in school. So again, one family has got uh, one child. And another family has both of their childs, uh, both of their childs, both of their children having their identities switched. Unbelievable. School officials were told by parents not to speak to their children about gender identity, but actively dismissed the instructions and not only continued having such conversations, but began addressing their daughter in school by an alternative name and pronouns. School staff used the girl's real name only when they were communicating with parents. So they were, quote, intentionally concealing their affirmation of her gender transition at school. Uh, we are seeing this type of concerted effort by school officials across the country. School officials are making decisions about the lives of children that they're not qualified or authorized to make and doing it without telling and often deceiving parents. Let me tell you what this is about. I've been doing stuff about this for 12 years. This is about the U.N. Convention on the rights of the child, to say that children uh, are, have the maturity to make these decisions, but the parents don't, and the parents don't have any say-so in this. That you're going to go to the child, even in kindergarten, and you're going to pretend that the child has the maturity to make these kinds of decisions, and you're going to cut the parents out. That's what the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child has always meant. It's about attacking the family. That's all that it is. As they said, um, the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education says the person best situated to determine a student's gender identity is that student himself or herself at whatever age, any age. The guidance says some transgender and gender nonconforming students are not openly so at home for reasons such as safety concerns or lack of acceptance. 
School personnel should speak with a student first before discussing a student's gender nonconformity or transgender status with the student's parent or guardian. It's all about them. These are pedophiles, pedophiles, you know, doing their drag queen story time hour and their striptease in front of their students, showing videos to kids, talking to them in private. This is where the number two guy at HHS that dresses up like a woman, this Levine guy, uh, that's where he hung out. He was a child psychologist. How convenient if you're a pedophile. This is about the LGBP, the pedophile aspect. This is the next thing coming in. You know, these people say they're minor attracted persons, maps. Well, that's just saying, well, you know, you got to catch me doing it, but I can talk about it all the time I want. Uh, that's what this has been from the very beginning. And uh, this is a war against the parents, against the family. It's a war against the church. It's a war against God. That's what this is. Uh, nothing other than that. Um, so is it any surprise that you have Satan clubs that are proliferating around the country? Uh, in Pennsylvania, they have just rejected it for the time being a Satan club. This is put out by this uh, guy who has the satanic temple. He goes by the name of Lucian Greaves. That's his phony name, his pseudo name, his pseudonym. His real name is Doug Messner. Doug Messner calls himself Lucian Greaves. And he's got all these uh, statues of Baphomet that he's trying to put in the public square. He wants to have these uh, Satan clubs in the schools. Look, he's an atheist. He says, well, I don't believe in God. Uh, and so that's why I'm doing the Satan clubs. Well, no, actually, uh, <laughs> you should call his clubs the uh, Garden of Eden Club uh, because <laughs> he's, he's telling these kids, you know, hey, you were God, right? And you can be God. Now just join my club here. That's the oldest lie in the book. The After School Satan Club is an after school program that promotes self-directed education. Yeah, right. Uh, part of its nationwide campaign is to push back against Christian good news clubs offered to schoolchildren after regular hour classes. Uh, so this is all happening because, uh, as polls have shown, Gallup, for example, but I've, many different polls have shown, that even Americans who say they're religious don't bother to go to church, synagogue, or mosque. They don't practice it. And they're no different from anybody who says they're atheists. And uh, so that means that they are vulnerable to this kind of deception. By the way, this guy put his satanic temple in Salem, Massachusetts. Yeah, uh, that's where he went. Meanwhile, Florida has warned against sex changes for children. Uh, they said that um, children may not be prescribed puberty blockers or cross sex hormones or receive sex change surgeries. So there's been an unscientific shift in the treatment of gender dysphoria for children and adolescents. The guidance from the Florida Department of Health also advises against social gender transition, which includes changing a child's name, pronouns, and clothing in accordance to the new so-called identity. I mean, we look at this and you look at the cynical way these kids are being manipulated by these adults in school. It's just pathetic. Uh, you know, oh, this is something secret. This is just between you and me. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'm in a secret club. Uh, all of this stuff 
the way they're manipulating these kids from a position of authority and manipulating them from peer pressure and everything else. The Florida Department of Health pointed to a lack of conclusive evidence for gender transitioning and the potential for long-term irreversible effects. They said, um, and here's some of the things that are being done for these very, very young kids. When you take them away, you strip away the parents who are protecting them, and you put them under the care of these Satanists, these pedophiles. They said they've encouraged mastectomies, ovarectomies, cutting out the ovary, uterine extirpation, that means destruction of the uterus, penile disablement, tracheal shave. Tracheal, they are actually shaving people's trachea to change their voice. I mean, this kind of physical self-mutilation and these sick individuals pushing these children to do this just disgusts me. I don't care who kicks me off. I'm going to, you've got to oppose this. You've got to oppose this being done to kids in your society. Uh, the prescription of hormones, which are out of line with the genetic makeup of the child, puberty blockers, all these clinical practices which run an unacceptably high risk of doing them. Well, they're absolutely right about that, the Florida Department of Health. Isn't it sad, though, that when you go to the Florida Department of Health, the first thing you see is where you can get your COVID-19 vaccine. Because, you know, the COVID-19 vaccine is wreaking havoc on everybody's bodies, wreaking havoc on your ability to uh, have children and all the rest of this stuff. And one way, when I look at all these different things about, well, you're going to go in and you're going to have mastectomies and penile disablements, and you're going to shave your trachea and all this kind of stuff. This is the ultimate in body shaming that the liberals say, don't do that. You know, don't criticize somebody because of the way they look or because of their disabilities or because they're overweight or whatever. That's body shaming. That's horrible. And, and it is, but these people are doing the worst kind of body shaming. They're shaming kids to make them self-mutilate their bodies. That's what's really happening here. Uh, you know, as, um, as Jesus said to Paul, he said, it's hard to kick against the goads, isn't it? We should be telling these people, it's hard to kick against the gonads. I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, you, you are just mutilating kids even to the extent of mutilating their voices. It's just unbelievable that this kind of stuff would be happening. Uh, so Sweden is pushing back against this. Finland is pushing back against this. Drug labels for puberty blockers warn of stroke and sudden cardiac death. Hmm. Maybe we could get a warning label like that for the jabs as well. Do you think they do that in Florida? No, not a chance. Not a chance. But do you see a trend here? Do you see what these people want to do? They want to destroy your body. Kill you if possible with the jabs. Come after your kids with all of these surgeries and drugs and the rest of this stuff. And even more importantly, they want to kill you body and soul. Body and soul. And kill your children. Body and soul. Want to shame them about their body, kill their body, kill their soul. That's what this is truly about. You know, Kaylee, uh, Kaylee McEnany, 
who is Trump's press secretary, is now a Fox News commentator. And Jen Psaki broke down and cried about the fact that it's going to be harder to body shame and to uh, you know destroy these children. Here's what she had to say in an interview. The political games and harsh and cruel uh, attempts at laws or laws that we're seeing in some states like Florida, that is not a reflection of the country moving to oppose LGBTQ plus communities. That is not what we see in data. That is not factual. Uh, and that is not where things stand. This is a political wedge issue and an attempt to win a culture war. And they're doing that in a way that is harsh and cruel uh, to a community of kids, especially. I'm, I'm like, oh, gonna about about, I'm going to get emotional about this issue because I just, it's horrible. But, uh, but you know, it's it's like kids who are bullied, and teachers. Is like all these leaders are are taking steps to hurt them and hurt their lives, like these school and administrators, their families. And you look at some of these laws in these states, and it is going after parents who are in loving relationships who have kids and separating it's them from their outrageous. kids. Um, but it is it is a wedge issue. Sorry. I, I'm this, this is an issue that makes me completely crazy, um, but it is an issue that um, is a political wedge issue. It is not a reflection of where the country is. Yeah. OK, well, uh, Kaylee McEnany says uh, Saki should cry about the aborted babies, not about forcing sexuality on five year olds. Well, I would like to see uh, Kaylee McEnany cry about that, or at least cry out in opposition to it. But as I pointed out before, Trump was silent about all this. The Trump administration was silent about all this. They pushed back and said, well, we're not going to find people uh, if they don't put boys and girls locker rooms and showers. But we're not going to prohibit it. And we're not even going to speak out against it. Instead, we'll let the states decide. That was you know, the policy of the administration that Kaylee served. And as this has gone on, have you heard anything at all about Trump speaking out against this? Of course not. Now, he loves the LGBT. They are his allies. You know, he is a hero to them. Uh, they give him and they give Melania awards. And uh, he represents uh, the gang of the, um, uh, of the Republican Party. Let me tell you, uh, I don't want to have anything to do with an America that's going to embrace Sodom and Marxism. Uh, if, if that's what America is going to be, uh, it's not going to be great. God is going to destroy an America like that. There's absolutely no. If she's going to cry, she should cry about the kids who are having their sexual organs mutilated, who are being given chemicals that are going to cause them to potentially have strokes and cancer, and even having their trachea shaved. You want to talk about bullying? You want to talk about uh, a government that is out of control? Well, that's what we should uh, be paying attention to. Our guest is ready. We're going to go to um, uh, someone who has been fighting against these lockdowns and these other measures and trying to get some officials uh, to join her. I think you're going to find this interesting because she's, she's been on a journey to try to rally support to take back our freedom at a grassroots level. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
listening to The David Knight Show. The Common Man. They created Common Core to dumb down our children. They created Common Past to track and control us. Their Commons Project to make sure the commoners own nothing and the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. thedavidnightshow.com. Well, as I've said many times, I think the solution to all this is going to be grassroots. And uh, if we're going to get any help at all, it's going to be primarily from local politicians. At the state and federal level, you're not really going to get much of any help. Uh, there's some people who are good. They're going to be shut down by the vast uh, number of people who are not at those levels. And so we have joining us now Julie Wentz. Uh, she is co-founder of Arizona Stands Up and founder and trustee and Minister of Freedom Healthcare. So I want to talk to her about both of those efforts. She was recommended to me by Sheriff David Hathaway in Arizona because he knows that I'm interested in local solutions. I think it's very important for us to have uh, people like sheriffs and local county commissioners and others who are going to stand with us against this. And that's what she was trying to do with Arizona Stands Up. So I want to talk about that. Thank you for joining us, uh, Julie Wentz. Thank you, David, for having me. Uh, glad you could make this. Tell us a little bit about, uh, well, first of all, let's let's talk about uh, where can people find out uh, more information about you? What is your website? Uh, the website is www.freedom-healthcare.us. So okay. freedom-healthcare.us. Dot, dot .us. Okay, good. Let's talk a little bit about, before we get into Freedom Healthcare, let's talk mm -hmm. about Arizona Stands Up. How and uh, why, and maybe even when, did you start getting involved to push back against this lockdown and masks and vaccines and vaccine mandates and all these different things that, that we've seen in, involved here uh, to put together Arizona Stands Up? How did you get involved in that? Um, it actually started uh, late February 2020. And I just had this nice little tiny life with my dog, not getting involved with politics, didn't like history, all of the fun stuff. <laughs> and I had two, two ladies Come and stay with me from uh, Washington State. And one of them had worked for Boeing for 30 years, and she lived in Wuhan, China for three years. And she knew the virology lab and she knew the wet market. And the conversation that ensued over a couple of days started me down that rabbit hole that I never thought I'd go down. But the information um, that I started finding out, I'd already known 
in my gut something was wrong. You know, God gives us that discernment when things are off. Yes. So I knew something was really wrong with what was happening. And the more I researched and the more I started finding out, one thing led to another. And I'm like, okay, this is just bad news across the board. This is evil. There's something going on. And that started. And then I realized we have to do something at a state level to try and start fending this off. And I had given some of my time to one group that had started up. And then I left there because they weren't going the direction I thought we should. And my friend and I co-founded Arizona Stands Up. And the goal was to start litigation to uh, take down the state of emergency because there was no emergency and everybody's freedoms and lives and livelihoods were being affected. So that became the main focus. And we collaborated with uh, Ohio Stands Up, Tom Renz that did the lawsuit there, and then New Mexico Stands Up, and we became Arizona Stands Up to try and work towards finding local representation to take on this lawsuit. So, you know, here all the way through, I never dove into any of this and started realizing um, how much non-freedom there was and how corrupt the system was. So even first, just looking for attorneys to stand up with us to do it, it was like crickets, not even (laughs) just the nonprofit, you know, the nonprofit attorneys, the big ones that are out there in the firms wouldn't pick it up. And then we started going for local attorneys and we'd finally found one after a whole bunch of them. And they said they would help. They were conservative. We felt good about it. We started raising the retainer. And when we got close to it, I reached out going, hey, you know, we're getting close. We got a couple of questions. And the head of the firm said, oh, sorry, we've been asked by Governor Ducey to represent him on something else. So we can't help you. It would be a conflict of interest. Oh, so I was convenient. not <laughs> very convenient. So they started finding out what we were trying to do. And it was it was really I thought not only was I furious, but I was also OK. God was protecting us because if they weren't willing to stand up for the rights and the freedoms of Arizona and and rather take money from the person doing all this, then they weren't right for us anyway. So yeah, you- we started looking for other attorneys. Um, some of the mandates started dropping, the social distancing, the, the masks and stuff started coming down around that time. And a few of the attorneys we talked to said, well, you don't have standing anymore. You know, you don't have standing with what's going on. I said, wait a minute, the emergency is still up. Yes. He hasn't taken it down and there is no emergency. And then we also, during this time, started a few other things. We started a grassroots newspaper called the Freedom Paper so we could get uncensored information out to the public, kind of like a, a founding fathers type of newspaper. We had started um, Freedom Town Halls. Committee of Correspondence, were, right? <laughs> that was it. Yeah, and that's what that's we called what they it. Called it yeah. Correspondence. Yeah. That was yeah. it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we even had the our team that took out the papers to the local businesses. We call them the Freedom Writers. <laughs> almost like, the mandates know, are coming. <laughs> the mandates yeah, are coming. Exactly. The mandates are coming. <laughs> or we're taking down the mandates. Um, so that was one part. And then the, um, the Freedom Town Hall, we had speakers come and talk to the public so they could get, you know, medical freedom advocates and get information to the public on what was really going on. We were even blessed to have Pastor Artur Pulowski from Canada, who everybody knows what he's gone through. Oh, he yeah. came down at, and spoke at one of our events. So all of this is going on. And then we reached out to a few more attorneys trying to see if we could find an attorney to do it. 
And it was really interesting. One of the well-known firms here, we had a conversation with towards the end. And I stopped even getting into conversation. One of the first questions I would ask them would be, are you a constitutional attorney? And depending on what their answer was, would be whether or not the conversation would continue. And one of the ones who's a, a well-known attorney here, when I asked that question, he literally just laughed and said, the Constitution hasn't been worthy for 120 years. Wow. And, and I'm like, we're <laughs> done, click. <laughs> so, just like Nancy you Pelosi. <laughs> you know, he's, a, he's from that wing like, of the government. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, there's there's no more constitution. That's what you're telling me. And yeah. you're a legal advocate for the people. All of these pieces really started showing me how corrupt everyone was mm -hmm. from the attorneys to the judicial system to our government, federal and state, a lot of state and all the things that had happened that I just wasn't aware of. So it's been quite eye-opening, quite uh, a training session that God has taken me through as we've done this. Well, and you correctly identified what the central enabling issue is, and that is the emergency. And I have dated this all from, you know, the declaration of emergency in days, 769 days ago. Every day I've got a, a connection to this because it was Trump declaring that state of emergency that A, gave them the money and B, gave them the presumed ability to operate under color of law. But they had laid this all out going back for 20 years practicing this, uh, you know, putting out the Model State Health Emergency Powers Act after they'd done uh, the dark winter simulation, after they'd had the anthrax attack and then, you know, um, uh, that was staged. And then a couple of months later, they put out this model uh, legislation for all the states to adopt. And that was what was triggered by these declarations of emergency. And that is the key thing. And, you know, Julie, we've had here in Texas, uh, just as recently as May 23rd, Texas Governor Abbott, a Republican, has extended the state of emergency. And he says there's an imminent threat that it may come back. So we're going to keep this under a state of emergency. That is the central foundational issue. I agree with you. Yeah, it is. It is everything. And I had a couple of our volunteers text me last week saying, oh, you know, one of the one of the senators said at an LD meeting that DC is taking down the emergency. And somebody else said, oh, is in the newspaper, you know, Arizona Republic says, you know, there's no more emergency. And I went straight to the his website looking under the executive orders and he has not rescinded the executive order that that original March 11th, 2020 executive order is still in place. He's rescinded pieces of it over the last year, but he has not taken down the original one. And there's a reason for it. Like you said, they have the ability to do things under the state of emergency. I found out we had different uh, IGAs around Arizona between the federal government and the counties, the board county uh, supervisors, the intergovernmental contracts. Well, there's different intergovernmental contracts that talk about money they're giving them for COVID issues yes. in these counties, as well as um, there was an ad up for like two months for a quarantine isolation um, housing manager. And the position was filled. That was just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So people mm. need to realize th the agenda is not stopping. They're not done. We've got a little breather here for the election people think they're getting their freedoms back which they shouldn't have lost anyway that's right but the agenda is not going to stop and after the election i foresee it coming down hard and heavy slamming because they have to get through this election I but agree. people don't realize you know this this is a very evil agenda this is heavy spiritual warfare 
and people have to realize that it's not done. No, what these emergencies do is it gives them unlimited money and it also gives them unlimited power. They can just, they can act as dictators. All of these bureaucracies, all of these politicians can just act as dictators because we're under a kind of soft martial law, but it's also the unlimited amounts of money. And that's why we're seeing these Republicans like Abbott in Texas, Ducey in Arizona, Brad Little in Idaho, and the Republican parties themselves are complicit with this at the state level because they refuse to call these governors out and say, we're going to take off this level of emergency. When they tried that in Idaho, uh, you had um, uh, the governor there dismiss them like he was some kind of a, a British colonial governor. He just dismissed the legislature. They tried to come back together for a special session because they weren't supposed to meet that year. And he just dismissed them. And then he called them back in when he wrote some legislation, had them rubber stamp it. I mean, this is crazy how controlled this whole thing has been and and how they continue to keep us under a kind of soft martial law. And that is the fundamental issue. It is the emergency. And uh, we have to remove that. So tell us uh, what happened with Arizona Stands Up. What were you trying to – I know you tried to uh, get some of the uh, sheriffs and police chiefs together. Tell us how that turned out. Um, and I'll go back to one piece before that to get to the, the sheriff's piece. You're, you're right. So our legislators are in their third session, and all they need is a two-thirds floor vote to stop his emergency, and they haven't done it. Wow. So it shows me they're complicit mm-hmm. in everything that's going on. All of them. That's they're right. all complicit. And then we have our election where AG has all of the evidence that it was a fraudulent election, and he's done nothing, and he's not going to do anything. They're all complicit in the actions. So with the... Um, and this is Republicans as well as Democrats. That's the other thing that yes. people push by. It's not Trump. It's not Trump. It's the bad Democrat governors. It's not even the Republican governors. It's like, no, it's Trump. It's Republican governors. It's the Democrat governors. He's paying them to do this. They're getting a massive amounts of money and they're loving it. They're not going to get yep. rid of any of this stuff. <laughs> no, no. It, they're all complicit in all of it. So one of the last pieces over the last six, eight months, and again, I don't like politics, not a lawyer, all this stuff has been learned, um, learned how to write notices and affidavits and cease and desist. So over the last six, eight months, we've, I and many people, hundreds and thousands of people across Arizona have filed notices and affidavits on Governor Ducey, the legislative body. Um, There was a period of time, uh, it's about seven, eight months ago now, when the hammer came down with the vaccines, the experimental gene therapy on the healthcare providers. And I worked on a process for them, a three-part process for the medical employees for our three big systems here in Arizona to help them hold their ground in their jobs. And they consisted of um, paperwork in the first phase with notification, then an affidavit in phase two, and then a cease and desist in phase three. And I'd never written any of these. I'd learned this. I asked my attorney friend from New Mexico, can I have your, you know, a generic cease and desist that I can kind of work on and figure it out. So each of those were done. And we know it made a difference because 98% of the employees, and I heard from all across Arizona that they held their jobs with the paperwork. That's great. And the cease and desist I knew was, was the biggest one because three of the CEOs from Dignity suddenly retiring. So two here in Arizona, 
and one here in Chicago. And, and what is Dignity? Is that a big uh, health uh, organization, hospitals or something? It, yeah, Dignity Health. It started as, I think, Catholic hospital charities or something like that. But Dignity Health is, is a huge one. We have Honor, Banner, and Dignity Health here in Arizona. And Dignity is countrywide. <laughs> and you get death with so, Dignity. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. our new and slogan. <laughs> So it was Sorry. cool because the one of the main CEOs was retiring after he received that cease and desist in Chicago, Lloyd Dean, and then Linda Hunt here in Arizona and just found out another local hospital. We served him 400 local uh, residents cease and desist to um, the CEO, and he's now retiring. That's great. So we put enough chunky stuff in there that if it did ever go to court, they would be held accountable for so many things. That's great because so that, that that's was, where they're showering money on them as well. It's not just on the governors who are getting many times what the annual state budget was and to be spent at their personal discretion. I mean, they don't have to negotiate things with, uh, uh, with the legislature. They just have it as their own personal discretionary income to buy favors and things like that with it. And the hospitals are just getting showered with cash. All this goes yeah. back to the Trump administration. Yep. And all the all the COVID money that they've been receiving and what each person is worth in the hospital, whether they're alive or they end up dying, there's money involved mm -hmm. um, as well as uh, each of each of the things that that they have going on. But that money, even Ducey gave two different times, 20, 25 million and 38 million dollars to the hospitals, the local hospitals as like a bonus. <laughs> It's like a bonus. Like, yeah. where did that money go? Did it go into all the CEOs' pockets? They got big chunks of money. So the money, you're right, has been flowing everywhere. So all of this process was was making way to get to the final piece because we've known, okay, government doesn't care what we're sending them. They don't stand up for the people. They're not standing up for our rights. This emergency is still going. And everything has happened. So we look at, okay, what is our next step as the people? since the legal system's corrupt judicial. So I talked to David at one point going, what does it take for us to do something as the people to get you guys to do your job? Because we hired you, we Sheriff, elected you, you Sheriff work David, us. when we say David, you say Sheriff David Hathaway. Yes, Yes, mm -hmm. David Hathaway. So we put together citizens' complaints and these citizens' complaints went out to all of the sheriffs and police chiefs in Arizona with the expectation that they start investigating what these people have done when they find that these things have been done to turn it over. And hopefully there's not just rhino prosecuting attorneys, but prosecuting attorneys, county attorneys that can then follow through and then we can call a grand jury. So it's just a, a step by step. Mm -hmm. You know, here's what we can do because we're at the point where if the sheriffs don't stand up for us, you know, we're willing to stand side by side with them. There's nothing left but we the people. That's right. We're it at, at this point. That's it. So these citizens' complaints came out. The final thing I wanted to do from what we started with Arizona Stands Up was to bring the sheriffs, police chief, and fire chiefs together to bring them really solid education they wouldn't get anywhere else and information that was not only state-specific but global information that they wouldn't get with what's going on. And I had some amazing speakers and. Uh, all scheduled and virtually 2% of all the invitations that went out four times to all of these people, only 2% responded. Wow. Wow. That's amazing.
And this was a free event. Mm -hmm. It was only about three, four hours long, amazing speakers sharing their time, like really good speakers. And they were coming in. It was a private event. The public wasn't invited. And that was the response. So that was very disheartening, but it also showed me where we're at. Yes. It showed me where we're at. Was it going to be a, a local event? Did they have to travel somewhere or could they do it uh, with an online Zoom was, conference or something like that? It was it was local. Hmm. It was local. It was centralized. I mean, the, the furthest anybody would have to drive would probably be Sheriff Hathaway. Mm -hmm. And he was actually <laughs> going to come be one of the speakers, you know, yeah. it, it wasn't that far. It we're all in the state. Wow. So it, that was, that was disheartening, but that was the final piece because I was going to be sunsetting Arizona stands up anyway. But during that time with helping those medical professionals, I realized everything that we were doing was all reactive. I knew down the road, it was still going to come back. I knew that they were still going to get fired down the road if they didn't take the jab. I thought we have to be going proactive. We have to be stepping into a position of proactive and having multiple conversations with people um, about what it looks like stepping forward. And what kind of hit me over the head know, four or five months ago, I was at an event in Tucson and Dinesh D'Souza was speaking. And towards the event or towards the end of his speech, he said, we're really at a place in time where our America has to change. He needs, he goes, we need to create an America within America. We have to create a new America. And just that statement was like, he's right. Every single system is crumbling. We have to create new systems. Yes. We have to step out and start creating new systems. And that's where this idea for freedom healthcare came from, because I was having a conversation with a friend and we're like, we need to create a new healthcare system. They're, they're killing us in the existing healthcare system. They're prescribing drugs. They're giving, you know, a killer vaccine. And it's no longer about health. It's about money. We're all just Petri dishes for big pharma. So we needed to step out and do something new. So when I said that's way outside my wheelhouse, I'm not a medical professional. I've done some organizational things, but I don't know that. And she goes, well, how do you know God just doesn't have you exactly where you are for a reason? <laughs> so, you know, I just started praying about it. I'm like, okay, God, you are going to have to bring all the people. I can be the hands and feet. I can put this together. But you need to bring the people that are going to fit into the puzzle, create this puzzle that needs to happen. And that's how Freedom Healthcare is born. And the people that are coming on board behind the scenes to help are just amazing. Every day, God brings me somebody that has either some piece of it or like you helps us get the word out. Well, tell us a little huge. bit about how this is, uh, you know, it's a, you're talking about getting a healthcare system that's outside of the system that the first thing they want to do, regardless of what is happening to you, they want to test you for COVID because that's where the money starts flowing. So I've had uh, people who are uh, EMTs, emergency uh, technicians write me and say, I, I, I'd never seen anything like this before. Now we had somebody coming, it's clearly presenting a heart attack is under cardiac arrest, and instead of taking him in for treatment, they wheel him into a room to do a COVID test first and, and let him suffer from this heart attack. And, and so that kind of health care, quote-unquote health care, uh, is, is uh, what we want to try to avoid. So, so you're doing the organizational part of it, but, but what is the goal of and what is the vision of Freedom Healthcare? So the vision for Freedom Healthcare is to create a system side by side from what's the existing systems, but completely outside of government touch. Mm 
and be able to do the things that should be done for people with alternative healthcare providers, things in nature and that are out there that have been kept from us mm-hmm. health-wise mm-hmm. and to step into a different form. So we are actually a private membership association and are, and we're actually a ministry. We're a protected entity and we're a ministry and our ministry is healthcare. Hmm. So the Good. goal is getting actual true healthcare to people. We're, we live in a time where there's a, a standard of care right now. All these hospitals talk about a standard of care. Well, standard of care means you're sick and they're going to give you drugs. Doctor is going to give you a drug and then another drug for the side effects of that drug. We're stepping into a place of a standard of health. We're going to help people get back to that God-given perfect immune system and health that we were born with and find ways, healthy ways, body, mind, spirit, do the entire thing and help people get back to that place of health care. So it is a membership association. As this has gone along, God will just give me different words like, okay, what is that? Because I'm not a medical professional, but we, I've got all these medical professionals helping behind the scenes and laid it out. So we have four phases that we'll be launching. And as the information has gotten out there, I have now about 13 states that have reached out going, when are you going to have clinics in our state? And it's like, we will nail down the model here in Arizona. And then we'll just share it everywhere because we have to step out of what they're doing to people in the existing system, how the doctors have been trained since they started school in the late 1800s when Rockefeller and Rothschild took over and everything's about prescribing drugs. We're Mm -hmm. just little money fits for them Mm -hmm. and getting back to that place of of just real health. Well, that's great. I was just talking yesterday. Uh, I I like to go back and, and remind people every once in a while of articles that came out. First one was back in 2017 where they were talking about Gilead Pharmaceutical. They came up with a treatment that actually cured hepatitis C. And uh, then they hit <laughs> hit a wall and Wall Street was lecturing them and said, don't cure this. This is not how we sustain our profits. And then they repeated it in 2018. And you had a Goldman Sachs analyst that said, use them as an example and said, look at what happened. They made $12 billion one year, but then they started curing hepatitis C and they only made $4 billion the next year. Now it's basically nothing because this is a contagious disease if you eliminate it. You eliminate your new customers as well. You don't want to cure disease. And so they really don't. And, and that is, as you point out, you know, the Rockefeller model and, and what the medical community has, has done with this. I think it's, it's time that we start looking at different alternatives to it. Uh, but, you know, I think also perhaps, uh, Julie, there's, there's a lot of medical doctors. And a lot of times you'll see medical doctors who will start to gradually incorporate uh, other things outside of just prescribing pharmaceutical drugs and things like that. But there's also things like, you know, emergencies that you have uh, where regular health care can be very useful. Uh, you know, if you've got a situation where you've, uh, uh, you know, cut your arm severely with a, you know, a saw or chainsaw or something like that, instead of going to the emergency room and getting captured by those people, seems to me like there'd also be an opportunity for a lot of these doctors, nurses, even EMT people who have, uh, you know, had this either been kicked out of their jobs or have this these vaccine mandates hanging over their head like the sword of Damocles, it'd be an opportunity to pull some of them in uh, to a situation like that for that type of emergency care, along with you know actual health care things that are going to be there. And and it seems also very much like uh, although you know you're actually talking about providing the stuff, we've got these 
these organizations like Christian Care, MetaShare, and Samaritan Ministries, where people want to get out of the insurance aspect of it because that's driving you know, this, this insurance industry and the hospitals are financially driving a lot of this stuff in ways that are uh, against really the best interest of our health. And so you know, when you get out of this insurance thing, uh, what we have found is that uh, hospitals lose a lot of incentive to do a lot of experimental things to you and harmful things to you uh, because uh, they don't think they're going to get as much money out of it. So uh, coming in as a cash patient and having a collective there, that that helps you a lot. So there's a lot of different, seems like to me there's a whole spectrum here of things that could be done. People who are fed up with the system, we've had doctors who said, I'm just not going to participate in the insurance system anymore. Uh, because it's just uh, too much of a hassle and it dictates things. And so we would go to those types of doctors and, and pay them cash. And, and it was less money than what we would have paid with a standard insurance and a deductible. But there's a lot of these doctors and nurses who could possibly help with these emergency procedures who uh, could prescribe some things for you if you wanted them, antibiotics. You know, it seems like there's a large spectrum of people out there who would be interested in participating in this who have been kicked out of this thoroughly corrupt system. No, you're right. Um, you're a thousand percent right on all of those. I think back to where it started, where we are just a petri dish. So when we started with the, you know, the non-fat food pyramid back in '58 or '60, and <laughs> yeah. them creating all of this food with chemicals and sugar, and people don't even look at the ingredients that are on some of these labels. Everything sugar is either the second or third ingredient in just about every processed food. Sugar creates inflammation. Inflammation creates disease. Well, then you have dis-ease in your body and you need drugs from the doctor. So there's this evil symbiotic relationship between the food industry and big pharma. Yes. But you're right. All of the, the insurance piece we're looking at, um, the catastrophic piece we're looking at, because there's four phases. And the first phase for Freedom Healthcare will be a telehealth in-home visit, because a lot of people would like to go back to in-home visits and then a pre and postnatal care for, for women. And that would be in home. So that model's already been put together. And that's uh, super important phase. because the way they, I mean, even before this stuff started, you had a lot of yeah. uh, you know, pressure on all kinds of vaccinations on the kids immediately after birth when they don't have an immune system that could even do anything with that stuff. Uh, that's very important. Yeah, and that's gonna be a very cool piece that, that we're putting in. Uh, the second part is the clinic. So you're right, drug primary care clinics, and they're going to have concierge options depending on what that person needs. Um, there'll be a healthcare navigator that walks them through each step. There'll also be clinic urgent care fusions, and we are a private membership. So people have to be members of this to actually come in the door. So we will not take 911 calls. We will not take emergencies unless they're members. They mm -hmm. have to come in that way. And it is going to be private pay. So we won't take normal insurances and we won't take uh, Medicare, Medicaid. We're already thinking down the road, how are we going to help our seniors? And then the third part are micro hospitals. So there's specialty hospitals, whether it's, you know, a, a birthing center and NICU or a cardiac hospital, they're small. We don't want to be big like any of these big systems. That's not the point. We just want to be everywhere to be able to help people at a small scale. And then the fourth one is um, really started coming into play. Phase four was I had so many calls and emails from nurses who were in their final term and they had to do clinicals. And this was just locally. And they're like, what do we do? We can't 
finish school, we can't do our clinicals because the, the hospitals want to give us the jab. What do we do? And I could only give them some suggestions, but, it, but we lost so many good nurses this last year and a half. And I thought we need a nursing school. We need a nursing school. We need education center. So the last one will end up being, you know, an education training center, nutritional, wellness, sports, lab and research. There's a lot of very cool stuff being researched out there right now that have healing properties for people from nature that God's given us that yes. we will be able to get to people. Wow, that's so really exciting. That's yeah, really, and, and you really teaching. thought this thing through. And that's a key thing, you know, when we look at this and we say, we've got to have a parallel society. We've got to get out of, of this corrupt system that is coming for us. And a big part of that, a big question mark for that, is the medical side of it. You know, there's the food, we got farmers, that's one of the, you know, that's a key thing, but you know, we do have farmers out there and farmer uh, collectives and things like that. Uh, how do we get out of the financial system where they're gonna try to corral us with this central bank digital currency? Well, you know, you got gold and silver yeah. and, and some other things like crypto maybe. And, uh, but you know, when you look at the medical aspect of this, uh, that's where the big issue is right there. And that that is, uh, that's great that I like your model and where you're going with this. It's very, very well yeah. thought out. It's it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty exciting in each piece that God gives me. It's like I have people behind the scenes that are working on it because I'm just hands and feet. And uh, the insurance piece, like you talked about, because I've looked into the MediShare, Samaritan's Purse, all that kind of Samaritan's, uh, each of those. And they are a simply to me like a money pot and you pay into them and they pay your doctor bills. Well, even on their websites, they don't guarantee that they will pay everything, but the model of the money pot is good. So we're looking at creating that type of a model inside the organization. We will not have anything come in from the outside because we are a protected entity. It's membership based, but we are looking on that, looking at that insurance piece, not only for catastrophic until we have the hospitals up and going, but also for maybe small and mid-sized businesses, individuals. So I've got That's really some good. people working on that. And, and yeah, we use, kind of, um, you know, it's, it's um, not Samaritan person, Samaritan Ministries. And then there's also, yeah. um, um, you know, Meta, MetaShare. And, and we have been in both of those at one time or the other. And, and what happens, and one of the things I like about that is that you pay them like an annual fee. I don't know, Karen writes the checks. I don't remember what it was. It was like a hundred dollars, $150 or whatever it is now. And, and that really kind of covers administrative costs for the year. And then what they do is they just share needs from people. And so we write the checks directly. It's like our, our um, you know, instead of paying a monthly due, uh, what you get is from them is somebody who has had a condition and you write them a check directly. They tell you uh, what the condition is so you can pray about it. And um, so you write a check directly to them and their only function is to make sure that the checks are being written, that the people have received it. That's what they do in the, in the central thing. And, and so it's really a, a good thing. They help you in terms of uh, some medical advice before you go in, you know, to, to make sure that uh, you can talk to people about being a cash patient. So there's a lot of uh, good advantages of that. And yes. then they finally have like a, they have a catastrophic uh, option that uh, if it's something that is more than like $50,000 or something like that, it kicks into an insurance uh, type of thing where they cover, if you, if you have something super expensive like cancer or something like that, then it kicks into that 
so it doesn't bring the whole sharing system down. So that's kind of the, you know, the, but most of the stuff is just shared and, and paid directly from person to person. It's a nice model. I yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I like it too. I like the idea behind it. It's a matter of weaving something like that inside the membership because everything will happen just for the members inside. So that model's there. And I've talked to a few people that have it, how much they pay each month, what their deductibles are, you know, what they've used it for, what's been covered. So the model is good there. We just have to take something that's, you know, we don't have to recreate everything. We can take things that are in existence, but then actually morph it into what we need to cover our members inside. Yeah. So there's a lot of fun pieces. And like when you were talking about that, the cost for the insurance, and this is where, you know, I didn't have a medical background. So one of the roundtable conversations we're having one day, two of the doctors were part of it. I'm like, okay, one of our doctors is a 25 year um, ER doctor. And I said, how much do you get? Like when you do something in the ER, how much do you get paid for that? And uh, they were saying, well, it's, you know, 20, 30%, and then they have to cover their billing and everything else. I'm like, so where'd the other 70% go? You're only getting 20% of what was billed. Where's the other 70% going? Well, it's going to the hospital, the insurance companies. And then a cardiologist, I asked them the same thing. And uh, they said about 30% or um, like, what if you have a $10,000 uh, bill? How much do you actually get? About $190. And when I started hearing these things, I got super excited. Yeah. Because that means we can bring insurance costs way down for people. Like you said, if, if there's that sharing piece, if there's a monthly amount that's lower that covers the basics, you know, the yearly administrative fee as a membership, but then also knowing the true costs of something. If a cardiologist has to do this or a surgery, what is the true cost without adding on all the insurance fluff and mm-hmm. overage and hospital giant conglomerate oversight that has to feed the monster? what are those true costs and how do we pass that on to the people? So I got really excited going, all right, this is going to be way more affordable because we're taking the beast out of the system. That's right. Yeah. It's kind of, it's amazing how much overhead there is in it. And that's one of the reasons why these hospitals have been so ruthless in doing the bidding of the government, because it's such a gravy train for them uh, to have all this stuff. And, And it's kind of the type of thing that you see, even, you know, when you look at something, another area, like the uh, car companies, they're very on board with all these regulations and everything because it protects them from competition. If they didn't have all these excessive regulations, it'd be pretty easy for people to build <laughs> cars that uh, you know would compete against them. The regulations keep the competitors out, and that's really what's happening with these hospitals as well. So many of the hospitals are even county hospitals. And uh, I know I've talked to, to doctors in the past who said, yeah, there's these certificate of need that we have to have. And so we have to petition the hospital, the county, for this. And yet the county is running our competition. We have a, a private hospital. Uh, they are telling us whether or not we can put in another x-ray machine or whether we can put in an MRI machine or whatever. And then they decide, no, you can't. They're going to have to come to us in order to do that. I mean, that's the way this game is, is so rigged and why these institutions are so thoroughly corrupted. Right. And that's why we're stepping out of the system because of all the garbage and the control that the government has over the people, which they shouldn't. And all of the strings, you know, everybody being tied to the government and and not taking insurance or Medicare, Medicaid, because CMS decides what you can and cannot do. Well, 
No one's going to tell the people what they can and cannot have for healthcare based on what they want and what their choices should be for health, not necessarily drugs, but working towards health. We just have to create a way because we're watching what's happening with them anyway right. and working towards the socialized medicine, which is the ultimate goal anyway. So we have to step out. We have to get ahead of this to help people and be a step ahead. So as this agenda keeps rolling forward, we can help people on the side parallel and, and get out of the system. Yeah. You look at the way they control us, you know, they control our kids through education. They can control us through transportation, but especially through control of money, food, and medicine. And that's how yes. we've got to get out of these various systems. And that's why it's so important what you're doing. So at this point now, you're, you're still uh, putting this together. You haven't uh, implemented anything just yet at this time. You're still kind of in the, uh, the building stage. Is that correct? Yeah, it's very close. Virtually everything's ready to go. It just comes down to uh, funding and donations. So we work as a ministry and we're a protected <laughs> entity. We're a national nonprofit. So uh, all donations are all tax deductible, which is, a, I love that part of this because anyone that donates, it's actually a tax write-off. We've gotten the best of all worlds by the way we structured this, going back into the private and the, non, the nonprofit and the private uh, ministry that we have, it's protected under the first, fourth, ninth, tenth amendments. It's already been protected through SCOTUS rulings. So we did a lot of research on how we structured this. But the biggest thing we need from folks is donations to launch each phase and run the administrative piece. And once each phase is up and going, it becomes self-sufficient. That's great. So that's, that's where we're at. That's really good. And, you know, when we talk about this being a ministry, I was just talking about the, is either yesterday or the day before. I was talking about this recent Supreme Court case, uh, a, a, an officer in the military is in the Air Force, a lieutenant colonel, and uh, he went before the Supreme Court, and, you know, three of them, uh, the conservatives, um, Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch said, yeah, we agree with you, but the other six said no. His position was that um, this was a religious requirement, these vaccines. Uh, he said it's very much like the you know, little touch of incense that you'd have to throw in as a Christian to, for emperor worship to enter someplace, or it's like what Nebuchadnezzar made people do. But yet the Supreme Court, Julie, sided on the uh, side of, I would say, the mark of the beast principle, saying, no, you will yep. do that. And, and, and so this is really coming down to a, a religious issue and if uh, we're going to stand against this, we're going to have to understand what this really is. Uh, and we're going to have to, as I've said before, if you've got an endpoint that is outside of life, which is where you're judging everything from, uh, that gives you a massive point of leverage to change these things. And I think that's exactly what you're looking at with this healthcare thing. You have a, a perspective that is outside of this life, and that gives you the opportunity to make massive uh, changes with that kind of leverage point in this life. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what we're all, or hopefully most people are focused on is what's going to happen after this point. And it was, it was fun going through when I, when I was looking for the verse that was going to be um, the main verse for uh, freedom healthcare, because it's a ministry and God's at the head of this. God is taking this forward. He's directing the steps, but I ended up landing on uh, Exodus fifteen twenty six. Exodus, because we are exiting the system. Yeah, And right. 1526, which is, I am the Lord that heals you. Yes. So in all, in all aspects, he takes care of us. So he's at the head of this. He's leading this. 
And you're right with, with SCOTUS. I mean, they've already shown that they're corrupt as well. There, there isn't any place in our government or lives right now that hasn't shown pure corruption. And what it's made me realize with all of this stuff going on and the evil agenda that's happening, there's no more rules. No one is following the rules that have been set up for us in the Constitution or just life in general. That's right. So if there's no more rules, we're going to now make the new rules. That's right. It's time for us to make the new rules and take back what's ours. What well, really is. Means, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that's that's where we're at. We have to take it back. Everyone has shown government all the way up sideways, backwards, whatever. They're not standing up for the people. That's right. It's not about it's about a, a global agenda and it's not about personal rights or freedom are God given inalienable rights. That's right. They're trying to take those away. So it's up to us to make the new rules. You're right. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting. You think about it as an exodus because, uh, there was an exodus movement encouraging people to homeschool. We're at the situation right now where if there was a physical place for us to go, uh, I would be going there. And I think you would as well, but there's not anywhere to go. And so we have to stay in place and we have to set up our parallel society and we have to exit in place, <laughs> physically staying yeah. here, but exiting these corrupt institutions and systems that have really lost their authority. Because once they, you know, they their authority is conditional upon their uh, obeying the Constitution, which is the supreme authority. And once they flaunt that, uh, they have no authority, but they still have power. But we have power when we operate together as a community. We have power when we are connected to God, and that's far superior to what they have. And so that's where well, we have yeah. to be. And it's, it may wind up being, you know, an underground system like you see the home churches in China. Uh, but we have to start working on what these different uh, systems are. So if a persecution comes at a later date, then we have uh, already learned some of the aspects of, of what we need to do in terms of food and health care and how we can exchange and barter services in this underground economy, if that's what it takes. Yeah. And it was like Dinesh, you know, said, an America within America. We yeah. have to create these pockets. Even my friend who's an attorney is helping, you know, people exit the education system with private education associations. There's ways for us to step out. There's yes. ways for us to do it. And I'll have people, you know, ask me all the time, like, what should I do? What do I do? And I'm like, number one, you got to be praying about it. Number two, just freaking choose something. Like, where is your heart? Choose, start a new event center, start a new co-op, start a new restaurant, start a new farm do something but we're taking it into the private where we can't be touched by that's the right. government we have our rights in the private that's right. and that's where we need to go yeah years ago i think a very important book that i read uh, to me was by oz guinness and it was called the calling and he talked about the fact that uh, you know it's part of the reformation the protestant reformation that happened people realize that there are callings other than you know, being a member of the clergy, you know, there, God calls you to do a lot of things. Uh, William Wilberforce is a good example of it. Uh, he stayed as a member of parliament and he made it his life's work to get rid of slavery. And he was successful in doing that. So we have a lot of different things that God gives us as gifts. Uh, people have different types of intelligence. They have different types of abilities. They're called to do different things. And, um, and that is something that we don't really seem to embrace enough, I think. And, and so it's, it's, it's great to hear what you're doing, Julie. And uh, I want to stay in touch and, and as this is developing. And again, people can find this at uh, freedom-healthcare.com. 
freedom-healthcare.us, freedom-healthcare.us, a great model, and I think it is a great calling that you're working on. Uh, there's People can find things that they can do, find things that they have a passion for, find things that they're being driven to, and that is the key thing that we have to understand. And that's how we're going to remake this uh, and uh, help each other. I agree with what you're doing. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I never expected to be here, but this is where I'm at. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Things work. In, God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? All right. We're going to take yes, a quick break and we will be right back. There's a couple of quick things I want to talk about before the program ends about uh, uh, the new world order and about free speech. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Deceit. Telling the truth is a revolutionary act. You're listening to The David Knight Show. Yes, uh, when we look at what has happened to us, the world catastrophe that has been wrought by COVID lockdowns. And, and we're starting to see this happening, as I've been talking about for several weeks now in Shanghai. It is the lockdown. It is the emergency. That is the central thing. And I hope you can see the pattern now. But in this particular article, uh, they're focusing on the food aspect of it. And they said, if you go back and you look at some of the metrics of when we have had unrest and revolution in various places, they said uh, world food prices were already 40% above the pre-lockdown levels at the start of 2022 due to supply chain disruptions. And then you add Biden's war. Mm. Factories closed, workforces told to stay home even when they weren't sick. Shipping costs increased because of arbitrary port closures. And now they go for the epicenter of the Chinese shipping, which is Shanghai. So to give you an idea, going back to 2015, there was a paper that looked at what was happening to food prices that kind of triggered riots around the world in 2007 to 2008, and again in 2010 to 2011. They found that there were two serious riots worldwide per month that occurred when food prices rose 50% above previous levels. They found that four to six riots occurred when the prices doubled. So where are we right now? Again, uh, you started seeing food riots when it was about 50% above, and you'd see a couple of them uh, per month. Food price levels right now, well, in early 2022, were already 30% above uh, the uh, post-GFC peak. And so now uh, they've continued to rapidly escalate. Uh, so as they point out, governments have been spending more than they're able to tax. Economists would say that we're now on the right-hand side of the Laffer curve. Remember the Laffer curve? It's a bell-shaped curve. We see all these bell-shaped curves, right? The curve. We got the curve. We got to flatten it. Well, you know, that particular curve, bell-shaped curve, said that um, Arthur Laffer, the economist that uh, uh, Reagan... Uh, referred to to do the tax cuts, point out that, okay, as you start to raise taxes, uh, your revenue will go up until you start to get to a point where the revenue flattens. 
and you don't, as you raise taxes, you don't get any more revenue. So that's the flat part, the top of the curve, top of the bell. And when you keep raising revenue, your revenue, uh, keep raising taxes, your revenue actually declines. And we know that's true. That's even an intuitive thing, but we've seen it happen in the past. And so he says, well, it looks like we're on the right-hand side of the Laffer curve where things are starting to, we have so many taxes, the things are starting to decline. And so, um, you know, we're at the point really where Pharaoh tells the slaves to start making their own bricks. <laughs> but in terms of Exodus that we were just talking about, okay, I still want the same stuff from you, but now I also want you to make your bricks. The big political game in the West, and particularly in the EU right now, is how to prevent populations from running away from the system and exiting it financially. See, how do they keep us and their slave system? And, of course, when you look at this, that's where the digital passports, that's where the crypto, you know, the, the CBDC, the central bank digital currency, that's where this all comes in. That's how they keep us under their control. Uh, Tony Arterburn. Thank you, Tony. Appreciate that tip. Thank you for the show, Dave. Well, thank you, Tony. Tony's a, a big supporter of the show. And uh, go to davidknight.gold, and that'll take you to where you can find gold, silver, and crypto that uh, uh, Tony can help you to uh, purchase and acquire. To complete, to, to prevent a complete collapse of their tax base, they're trying to force people into their approved currencies so they can keep taxing us. See, this is another aspect of this. And I've said many times, if the deficit doesn't matter, and of course, Trump doesn't think it matters. He's a bankruptcy king. Biden doesn't think it matters. The Republicans and the Democrats all think that we got a magic money tree. They call it the modern monetary theory. Uh, you had Trump come after Thomas Massey, said, we're going to get this guy. You know, when he complained, he said, you can't spend $3 trillion. You don't have $3 trillion. Get that guy. We're going to primary him out. Well, he didn't, fortunately. But you see, the, um, they, don't, they have completely detached income from expenses. So why are they still taxing us? The very fact, as I pointed out, you know, this, this week, income tax time, I pointed out, why do we have the income tax? It's simply to control you, to observe you and to make sure that you don't have disposable income. They're not trying to balance the budget. That's not even a close consideration. And they don't even talk about how it's even necessary anymore. It's all about control. And that's what the vaccines and the digital passports are for. That's what the cryptocurrency is for. And as he points out, the levers for the kind of control that they're going to do are going to be they'll pay the people who work for the government. They'll be paid in this central bank digital currency. If you want to get welfare and other support from this, they'll make that part of it. Of course, that's a model that they've already tested and approved and used in India. The Aadhaar system is what they call it there. And they went to the poor people and said, all right, we got some new welfare stuff for you, but guess what? You're not going to participate in any welfare payments unless you get an identity number. You're going to have to get your Gates, Gates worked with them on this. You're going to have to get your Gates ID, the Aadhaar system. If you do, we'll give you some welfare payments. Otherwise, you're outside of this. And, uh, of course, they'll coerce the uh, companies, corporations to pay their bills, pay their staff, that type of thing. And they'll try to make uh, consumer transactions that way. That's why we have to start working on all of these different underground areas now so we understand how they're going to work. So we have private money. So we have a, at least a partial underground economy that helps us to survive. That is essential as you see governments going corrupt, 
you see a greater and greater percentage of the underground economy. You probably, none of us will be able to operate 100% in the underground economy. But you have to participate in it somehow if you are not going to be ex completely excluded. And so we see as we look at all of this, and we talked about the emergency executive orders, guess what? We've got Governor Brian Kemp in Georgia has just declared a state of emergency over, not the COVID, over supply chain disruptions. See, here's the secondary effects, a secondary emergency, an emergency that came from the lockdowns. And now that becomes the self-perpetuating state of soft martial law. He's given himself power to do anything and everything because now there's a supply chain emergency. It's like I said from the very beginning, more so than the virus, you've got to worry about the lockdowns. The lockdowns created the supply chain shortages. So let's call that an emergency so we can continue the emergency. <laughs> you understand. Thanks for listening. Common man. They created Common Core to dumb down our children. They created Common Past to track and control us. Their Commons Project to make sure the commoners own nothing. And the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. TheDavidKnightShow.com